I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <coughs> the Phantom of the Opera. This is a show we've been planning for years. And in fact, I mentioned it years ago on Twitter and our guest tonight immediately piped up. Hello for the first time to Michaela Gray, a.k.a. Boonis Everdrunk. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the show, Michaela. Pull up a chair. I was six when the Phantom of the Opera stage show by Andrew Lloyd Webber hit London's West End. My parents went to see it the following year and brought back a double cassette tape and a vague description of events for me. Sold! Your number, sir? Thank you. Lot 665, ladies and gentlemen... A papier-mâché musical box in the shape of a barrel organ. Attached, the figure of a monkey in Persian robes playing the cymbals. This item, discovered in the vaults of the theatre, still in working order. I latched onto it and listened to that show, age seven, again and again and again. The performances by the original cast members, Michael Crawford, Sarah Brightman and Steve Barton. I spent ages in my room building Lego listening to this. And it never really left me. In the mid-90s, I was lucky enough to be able to go and see it in London because we lived down south and that was it, London was a lot easier to get to than it is now. And then in 2001, two weeks after Sharon and I got together, this was the first big thing we saw together. And then three years later, this Joel Schumacher film came out and I loved it. And I love it now, more so as the years go by. And I'm in the minority here. This sits at... 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh. Whoa. Now, obviously, Rotten Tomatoes is not an entirely accurate judge of, uh, of filmic mm. quality, yeah. but it does, that does indicate that, that not that many critics were foaming at the mouth with how great this was. Yeah. It, it is a general indicator of public opinion, if nothing else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, most people that you talk to about this film don't like it if you do bring it up, including Phantom fans, who I would imagine have a PH for the fans. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay Ellis delivered a scorching 45-minute takedown of the Joel Schumacher film several years ago, and it is hard to argue with her conclusions. So oh, God, I yeah. I listened to that today, and oh, I was seriously? like, it's, it's harsh but fair. I can't really argue with it, yeah. but I still love the film anyway. I deliberately avoided it this time so that I wouldn't be on the defence, because I wouldn't be <laughs> like, right, now, Lindsay said this about this, and it's like, you know, you know what? Lindsay's smart as hell. That That's definitely something to see as an accompaniment, or if, if you will, a counterpoint to this show. What School of Movies thrives on is re-examining overlooked kicked around movies and giving you listeners a fresh perspective on them uh if we feel passionately about it we hope that that lifts you up or at the very least makes you give it a second look with an inquisitive eye it's not all we do mm. we sometimes love to give crappy films a kicking as well but i think where we really do well at is where it's we just the, love the something. uplifting of things that mm. other people are squashing yeah it, <laughs> it helps if it's something that other people are dismissive of mm. because uh, you know our pacific rim show people were like well that's just popcorn mm. 
It's more than it's cock more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we will mostly be talking about the movie here, but we will contrast it with talk about the stage show. There's also a 25th anniversary production released on Blu-ray. It was like 2011, uh, starring Ramin Karimlu, Sierra Bogas, and Hadley Fraser, which Sharon and I like a whole lot less than the film. And we saw it again the other night, just just beforehand. We'd, we'd I'd forgotten things that I didn't like about it uh, and for reasons that we'll probably go into but much like Star Wars everyone's favourite Phantom is different so there's going to be people who love that one the best people who love the Crawford one because they were there the first time around and wow you lucky bastards I was six (laughs) and I know people who swear by the Brian De Palma film Phantom of the Paradise though all I got out of that one when I saw it for the first time recently on a beautiful Arrow Films Blu-ray was that George Lucas nicked a whole lot of iconography there from his mate Brian to build the most iconic big screen villain of all time, Darth Vader, and the Star Wars comparisons do not end there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Over the course of this show, I will be playing you songs from all three productions mentioned above, uh, leaning most heavily on the film. I will also not be able to prevent myself entirely from singing, you have been warned. We are going to go song by song and talk about what we like and details of things that we like, just the things that we saw and things that we heard and things about the production. And yes, when we find them, problems with the text, because this is kind, this is problematic as a story, you know, and there's multiple, multiple versions of Phantom that date all the way back to like this original novel. And there isn't time and we aren't historically expert enough in phantom lore to really comment on a lot of that stuff we know bits and bobs uh sharon and i i think uh, michaela you might know more than us uh like we're going to focus on the schumacher film because that's something we actually do know about the film begins with an auction in the burned and abandoned opera house in paris 1919 it is grainy monochrome film and the items salvaged from the recently begun renovations are up for auction an aged viscount named raoul competes with an equally agent madame meg giri for a barrel organ monkey which was of special significance to the woman he loved and lost, Christine Daae. Now let me play you that first track and imagine, if you have not seen the film or heard the stage show ever, that once the big music kicks in, colour is brought back to the opera house. We go back in time, 49 years, to 1870, to when it was flourishing. May I commence at 15 francs? Sold for 30 francs to the Vicomte de Chagny. Thank you, sir. A collector's piece indeed. Every detail exactly as she said. Will you still play? When all the rest of us are dead Lot 666 then A chandelier in pieces Some of you may recall The strange affair Of the Phantom of the Opera A mystery never fully explained We're told, ladies and gentlemen That this is the very chandelier Which figures in the famous disaster our workshops have repaired it, 
and wired parts of it for the new electric light. Perhaps we can frighten away the ghost of so many years ago with a little illumination. Gentlemen. the contrast between the monochrome intro, which is not just monochrome, it's also flickery yeah. and... Given it's the look of that, old film. Yeah, that slight slowed-down, sped-up sense of, mm. uh, of old cinema film. And then when it swings to colour, it really gives you a sense of the cuts back and forth that you're then able to have between the interior of the theatre and the exterior which puts the theatre in a larger world before you then shift to the stage, which is effectively a parallel universe. And there's a lot So it's of, a play within a play within Exactly. A play. There's a lot of theming in this of, of undergrounds and undergrounds and undergrounds and undergrounds, which will support my ideas about how to analyse the characters, which we'll get into later. Right. Um, but I think having that monochrome at the beginning, it really demonstrates how the current or modern time which obviously we're seeing as old but for them is is the here and now is less vivid and less real than Raoul's memories which are about to kick in. While the past becomes more rosy. Yeah, exactly. And it also then sets that sense of everything that takes place within the theatre and the people who live and work there and then, by extension, the things that take place actually on the stage and as part of the operas that they're performing, being amped up much more vivid, much more um, intense and communicating a, a sense of memory as people recall it rather than mm. a cold breakdown of these are the facts of what happened yeah. which you you get kind of scattered throughout the film in the form of um dates on gravestones and things like that i actually think it works really well and it gives you a sense i think of how things have changed for raul so he's clearly he's older he's not happy this may be how his life feels for him now that he doesn't have Christine. So it's all very kind of uh, sort of like the colour has been washed out of the world now. You get the sense that he's sad, he's lonely, he's old, he's clearly not well. And then when he goes back into the opera and you get that, the music and the colour, and you suddenly see how his life was when he was young and how it was for everyone else then as well with the opera is this really kind of thriving community where people lived and had their lives uh, and it's all really kind of vivid. Um, and I was watching the DVD extras today, like the massive nerd that I am. And awesome. uh, they, were, they were talking about the um, opera house design and how they wanted it to be like a voluptuous woman, which is a slightly odd way of phrasing it. But I kind of see what they were going for. It's very kind of lavish and there's all this kind of gold and red. 
uh, yeah, and it's it's really beautiful actually. Mm. Yeah, and I I really like as well the ambiguity that they give you with regards to what has happened with Raoul. Obviously, he he mentions Christine, and she's obviously somebody who was very important to him. But at this stage, we don't know how their lives played out we don't know what their relationship was how long ago yeah. it is since he lost her any mm. of that stuff that all comes much later yeah so actually we won't spoil that here just in case people haven't heard the you don't know the details <laughs> of the story we'll keep a few details till the very end but that it's a framing device we occasionally cut back to the 1919 present as raul makes a long journey uh, um, home uh, and uh, stopping along the way elsewhere uh, but everything else is effectively what we're seeing is his memory, this sort of rosy flashback. And it's clearly intended by um, Schumacher to be this a heightened reality. They very specifically didn't film on location. They built this set. Mm. And, uh, and frankly, it, it, you could say that about almost every film Schumacher's ever made. Yeah. That's the world he <laughs> operates in. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's dreamlike and um, and has a lot of dry ice. Usually. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my Lord. There's oh. so much. <laughs> I'm a fan of dry ice. It's great. There's flourishes visually as we're actually going back in time with the the flames sort of burst out of the footlights, uh, which um, it kind of reminds you that that um, back in 1870 the footlights, rather than being electric, and they even mention in 1919, you know, part of the new electric lighting that back then it was flames and fire that would just be lit to illuminate the uh, the actors. The black and white flames bursting into colour is something that is indescribably beautiful and, and the, the statues that are sort of covered in dust, this dust blows away and they become gold and, uh, and, and gilded. It's, it is gaudy, but it's sumptuous and especially in contrast with the stage play which is very black there are like great panels of black that just everything is sort of enclosed in they they set it up as an actual opera for the uh, for, for that production side of it but then when we go to the underworld these sort of black walls move in around us and occasionally they do clever things by sort of you know illuminating uh, mirrors and, and gravestones and, and, and things on the back screen but it is a dark play where characters are illuminated by costume the way that Hamilton uh, everyone's wearing uh, neutral whites unless they're and, and ivory unless they're key hero characters when they put on these sort of dashing blue coats mm. In, in, the, in the stage show, it's about wearing these bright costumes, except for, of course, the Phantom, who's always in black with the white mask. And uh, in the film, it's just this grand gold and red, as you say, voluptuous woman performance thing. And, and because he takes us through the rafters and shows us so many people living up there, it does give you that sense of of life and, and, and um, people's goings-on, mm. as opposed to just the individual play that's taking place in front of you with what they can manage on the London stage mm. it is a proper across the world. It is a proper set designer's trick, though, I will say, having a, a story that's set on a stage for the most part, yeah, because yeah. then you get to incorporate the 
um, the structure of the building you're performing in mm-hmm. as part of your set. So you don't have to build yourself curtains and flies and things like that because, hey, your building has them already. Indeed. Uh, and one thing that was pointed out by the costume designer is that Christine almost never wears her own clothes. She's always in costume, mm. which very much informs on her character. We'll Absolutely, yeah. And I, I was going to say, I'm going to touch on that mm. in a bit. Yeah. We're shortly thereafter introduced to young Christine, played by Emmy Rossum, and young Meg, played by Jennifer Jennifer Ellison. And uh, they are two ballet dancers. And the dashing young Raoul, who has, uh, played by Patrick Wilson of the Conjuring films and Watchmen, uh, who has decided to fund the Opera House. And I do want to note that this is a musical wherein, specifically the film, people talk occasionally, as opposed to Les Miserables, where everyone sings everything, even things that should probably be spoken. So <laughs> let's note, what are the benefits of occasionally talking in musicals? It allows you to occasionally communicate things which do not have to be delivered with the intensity of an entire aria. <laughs> hey there, monsieur, what's new with you? Indeed. <laughs> Go and get some water I, from the well. It gives a bit more freedom if people can actually just talk sometimes mm. with the story, and particularly sort of when you've got the introductions when Raoul first comes into the theatre yeah. and he's sort of introduced to all the cast and everything. Uh, I mean, that doesn't really need to be a kind of song and dance number. It's just, you know, he's come in and he's he's met all the rest of the characters. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that really kind of particularly adds anything always to have everything in song. Hmm. It does also allow you to distinguish between the types of characters that you've got in front of you. So the fact that Raoul's introduction is spoken and the fact that he does get a fair amount of actual just spoken delivery mm. uh, as compared to some other people who are constantly singing, it makes him feel like a more practical down-to-earth, of-the-world kind of person than somebody who who does communicate in music all the time like the Phantom. Mm. Also, uh, just just that little exchange at the beginning where she uh, talks to Meg, first off establishes that the, the two of them are friends, uh, and uh, they, they, they do kind of have that bond occasionally reinstated throughout the film. But it does get... It gets a little bit from Christine about Raoul that he's not present for, mm. and that's not in the stage show. And when we watched the stage show recently, <clears throat> there was a lot less bonding between Christine and Raoul and very specifically the the way that uh, um Hadley Fraser played it was very aggressive with her very dismissive of her and he was there wasn't enough contrast between him and the phantom and it was like at some points I was feeling like she was being shoved in one direction by him shoved in another pulled in another direction by the phantom and by the end I was like just say fuck it I'm off with Meg <laughs> Absolutely, it's an Ibsen play by the end of it. Yeah. So th- there was a definite decision in this by Schumacher and company to ch- to change the positioning of Raoul to being um, uh, Schumacher re- refers to him as being more aggressive, but I think the word is dashing, mm. or uh, he's protective of Christine. He's certainly much more proactive. He's very tender 
and it is clearly outlined that he's a healthy relationship and the Phantom is an unhealthy relationship. Yeah, which I think for a, a production of this that takes place in the mid-2000s is absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of feeds into the whole gothic romance sense of it, um, but I'll come to that in a minute. But there's a, a few things that happen sort of at this early stage which I think are really key to how they play Raoul's character in this. Mm. Uh, part of it is, as you say, that aside between Christine and Meg, which allows to indicate to the audience that the uh, the connection between Christine and Raoul has already started. And then when he echoes her words later on, mm. saying, you know, she may not remember me, but I remember her, that the fact that you've got that mirroring between them creates more of a sense of connection between them which allows us to start investing in them as a, as a couple early and there's another thing as well which is when when Raoul comes in initially and he's talking about his role as the patron of the theatre he specifically references his parents mm. which makes him look younger which makes him look more vulnerable which gives him more of a sense of him being on a, on a, a parallel level with Christine although obviously he is a good bit older than her mm. and she's 16 I think and Emmy Rossum was only 16, 17 when she played her 17 yeah, um, she's very young. She's very young indeed, yeah. Which just makes that performance even more outstanding. Mm. Um, but but Raoul needs to be close to her, whereas the Phantom is closer in age to Madame Giry mm. and is, is much older and mm. has a much more authoritarian position. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that, actually, because, I mean, I will put my hands up and say I've kind of always had my issues with Raoul, but I think this is the best version that I've seen, and I did actually take my mum to see the theatre version Mm -hmm. after we saw the film Um, and we actually both preferred the film and I think it's because of the way that Raoul is played and also the extra kind of interaction between the characters like uh, Meg and Christine like you get more of a sense of who they are Uh, whereas the play you feel much more at a distance from everybody or you know we're just massive philistines but yeah that that was what we thought (laughs) Well, we are at a physical distance in the play. Uh, one of the things that bothered me watching the 25th anniversary version... A lot of stupid actors strutting around, shouting with their chests thrust out so far, you'd think their nipples were attached to a pair of charging elephants. <laughs> They're projecting so loud and... Very specifically, I'm going to say it now, Karimlu, the phantom in that... I have a very annoying vibrato! He sang... Everything with the same tone. It was unbelievable. Again, if you love his version of Phantom, that is absolutely fine. I grew up, as I said, with Michael Crawford, and there's a softness and a serpentine quality to his voice where he can. Why, you ask, was I bound and chained in this cold and dismal place? Not for any mortal sin but the wickedness of my abhorrent face! And then he can. Softly, deftly, music shall surround you. Feel it, hear it, closing in around you. Open up your mind, let your fantasies unwind in this darkness which you know you can. Darkness of the music of the night. Actually, specifically, Karimlu's version of music of the night. Like, 
I specifically picked on the line, softly, deftly. It's like, are you fucking kidding me, mate? How did you get this job? Softly, deftly needs to be sung softly, deftly. Softly, deftly. Music shall surround you. Hear it. Feel it. Closing in around you. Open up your mind. Let your fantasies unwind. In this darkness, which you know you cannot fight. The darkness of the music of the And in comparison, Gerard Butler's version, while he's got a more brutal-sounding voice, it's more rock opera, and he's got, like, a real masculinity in there, he can croon as well. He's got the softness. Mm. So, like, if nothing else, if you want to appreciate the film more, see the see Karim Lu do the equivalent of auto-tune as he sings everything the same. God, but no, so you're really not selling it to me. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's interesting that you say that about Butler because I think, with the possible exception as well of Miranda Richardson, he's the only one who doesn't come from a, a musical theatre background. Yeah, he? he was crapping his pants when he was doing his mm. uh, his audition. He was like, "Oh no, I've got to sing music of the night." <laughs> <laughs> Descri- I like that you make him sound like Shrek doing that. No, no, yeah. We described him on our 300 episode. Lauren described it. No, I described him as CrossFit Shrek. <laughs> That's very good. Okay, um, so so this is our kind of apology to Gerard Butler in Three Hundred, uh, um, because uh, like, I will say straight out the game, this is the performance of his life. I don't think he's ever going to be this good again. Well, not if he keeps making has fallen movies. Well, yeah, okay. most of his movies are about a hard man who's like, oh, I've created a special new satellite called Dutch Boy. Oh no, I've got to go to space. And, and it's like he's a man's man, a manly man. Whereas in the, uh, in this one, he's uh, yeah, he's vulnerable. You know, he's. I gave you my music. I cannot imagine modern-day Butler doing anything like this. It's so much more multifaceted. And I really appreciate it. Okay, so let's... We've had enough enough talk. Let's do Think of Me. This is the song which Christine sings that makes you, the audience, fall in love with her. If you haven't, by the end of this song, Phantom's probably not for you. It's a song she's saddled with within the show uh, because Carlotta, the big prima donna, uh, major opera star, 
won't perform because the Phantom keeps making accidents happen and she's frankly scared. Now, before we carry on, I will mention that the Carlotta in the 25th anniversary version probably gave the best performance because she seemed to be really upset and like on the verge of a heart attack all the time. And I felt really, I always feel sorry for Carlotta, uh, you know, even though she's terrible. Um, But she's meant to, she's a very hard done by character, I have to say. I I think, um, and I really felt it this time, possibly because I had seen Minnie Driver (laughs) in the interview talking about it and... And we love Mini Driver. Bad for her. But Carlotta is a deliberate foil mm. for Christine. She is raucous where Christine is sweet. She is old where Christine is young. Everything about her is about setting her up as a deliberate opposition to this beautiful ingenue that mm. everybody wants on stage. She's big and pompous and arrogant, and uh, she wants everybody to love her. Whereas Christine, uh, kind. Christine's complicated, and we'll talk about her in a bit. And this is Think of Me. Think of me, think of me fondly when we've said goodbye. Remember me once in a while, please promise me you'll try. Then you'll find that once again you long to take your heart back and be Summer fade, they have their season, so do 
Carlotta won't sing. Christine dons the dress. It's a really great sequence in the stage show because mm. she goes from her ballet costume, like they basically just wrap a bit of dress around the middle of her and suddenly she's the, the lead singer. Yeah. And the one thing they missed out of the film was the scarf. It's this really lovely prop that the actress uses on stage to kind of accentuate her movements. And it, I missed it watching mm. the film. That's I the only they, thing I'd put in. They did add a different twist to it, though. She's got all those Swarovski crystals in her hair and they've got this oh, lighting yeah. effect that makes her look like an angel. She looks like a fucking Disney princess. I know. Yeah. Really okay, good. the thing I love about the song is that it, it, it applies exactly and perfectly to Christine and Raoul uh, in terms of she's almost singing it from her own heart as as though to say I'm seeing you again briefly, we're probably not going to spend much time together but then later in your life please stop and think of me it's, it's lovely mm. It's a good first example as well of Christine's own voice being mixed up with the songs that she is asked to perform Yes, And that, in combination with that observation about her costumes, the fact that the vast majority of the time she wears stage costumes and the only time you see her in her own clothes is when she goes to her father's grave and then you see her in the the chapel with Raoul afterwards. Mm. And those clothes specifically are much older and more sophisticated than the simple, often overly innocent or overly... Um, they're not exactly sexualized, and given that Emmy Rossum was only in her late teens, they probably would have got a bit dodgy if if they had been. But they are certainly um, revealing in a very simple way, mm. and it it's like you know that whole thing about <laughs> you know that whole thing about show me a woman in a costume that looks like she chose it herself. Mm. <laughs> um, there's a lot of that not happening with Christine. <laughs> yeah. Good sort of insight as well, I think, to how you are when you're in love when you're young, because it's very innocent and it's very kind of giving and it's just, oh, you know, I just want you to think of me and that's that's enough and it's all fine. And it, yeah, I just think it's a really nice sort of introduction to, to the, her kind of innocence and youth as well. Also, it's it's it makes her, her clearly humble. She doesn't want much. She just wants, you know, spare a thought for me. She doesn't want to be a massive star. She doesn't have this, you know, burning ambition. Uh, like, uh, in comparison to um, the fictionalised, home-wrecking version of real-life, kind-hearted opera singer Jenny Lind that uh, Rebecca Ferguson um, lip-syncs to in um, uh, The Greatest Showman, who, who sings a song that's just literally... Nothing will be enough for me, ever! It's a great, as Jenny Nicholson said, Christina Aguilera pop song. But uh, it's, it's, a wonderful it's song. not humble. It makes me cry every time I try and sing it. <laughs> but no, it's it makes not my neighbours cry every time I try. <laughs> you can turn down the volume, but it'll never be enough. <laughs> oh, very good. Sorry. Bravo, bravo, bravissimo. Great Jude. 
the next thing is 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 basically you know wow Christine now you're the star of the opera populaire where you know where where have you been learning all this music and Christine says that she has been visited by a singing instructor. I think this is one of those times where the film uh, doesn't trust the audience to grasp the, the the subtle nuances that could be at play here, and uh, they the script calls for Emmy Rossum to basically say, "I think this might be the ghost of my father," mm-hmm. whereas um, in the if if you keep it to just the song in the like it just that's some of that spoken stuff. If you keep it to just the song, there's that kind of oh, so it's like father once spoke of an angel, and there's that kind of you could see she's like her father has died some time ago. He was a famous violinist. She was orphaned and left in the care of Madame Giry. Yeah, she was. Who um, seems to care for a lot of young strays. She did. Well, that that's kind of the idea this of is her Meg's mother. living in the... Uh, Giry refers to them as the ballet dormitories. Mm. That's how it was done. Young girls would come and live in the opera house yeah. and basically train morning, noon and night. And, yeah. and it's not in the slightest bit healthy, but it... it is another thing that reinforces that sense of the uh, the opera being uh, an enclosed world, a community that everybody's very heavily invested in for this is where they live, this is where their safety is, this is where their protection is. And it's it kind of then emphasises how important it is that the Phantom not be allowed to take it all away from them by burning everything down. Yes. In uh, actually, of all films, John Wick Three, uh, they uh, it outlines in just one brief scene how tough as fuck most ballerinas are, how much physical control and how much resilience and, and strength and stamina they require to be able to do the things that they do. Uh, the, the ballet is uh, dismissed, especially by guys, but it's a martial art, effectively, and. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Chris- kills your body, Ballet. Yeah. It's really hardcore. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it can be taken to unhealthy uh, levels. See Black Swan. 
while she was singing on her own as a child, the uh, angel of music heard her, and so she became attached to this presence. And effectively what they're doing here is they're setting up the phantom. And uh, it's the angel of music song is effectively his intro song, and he kind of he thrives on this. When this is sung... He is at his most powerful, he is at his most sweet, he is at his most benevolent and fatherly. And uh, it's under these times that uh, Christine sees him as an extremely positive uh, aspect of her life. Mm. Well, she, between the two of them, the Phantom and Madame Giry have effectively been uh, her mother and father and representative of the opera house that's raised her. Yeah. Um, just as a, a slight aside, I love the bit where Giri is walking the new owners through the stage. Oh, God, yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, go and, on. No, 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 please take it away. Go for it. Oh, God, no, I just thought that was brilliant, where you have the two owners in and they're basically just slavering over these young girls. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yep, that's my daughter. And I think <laughs> her and the daughter, too. These girls are all my daughters. Yep. Fuck off. <laughs> Absolutely. She's got this proper protective tone over them which is really admirable but then also puts a little bit of a question mark over how she's positioned herself as the intermediary for the phantom because while she's being protective of of christine from outside influence Mm -hmm. she's also effectively handing her over to the phantom at no point does madame shiri go back off Mm. well she does but much later. Mm. And she kind of does it through other people because at that point she doesn't really want to get involved she's in doing it She's too subtle. Herself. But she's yeah. afraid. She's afraid of him as well. Yeah, that to an extent as well, we find out later on that she is protective of him in a similar yeah. way to, to her protectiveness of the girls. Michaela. Yeah. yeah, no, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, has the Phantom to this point actually done anything really terrible? Because we don't actually see him commit a murder until later on into the film so up until this point it seems to be that all he's done is kind of freak people out and um somehow managed to get the owners to pay him for living in the opera house which frankly respect (laughs) Um, (laughs) he demands twenty thousand francs from them i'd I'd love to do that with my housing association (laughs) technically he demanded it of the previous owner of the opera who uh said i think uh you know if you need me i should be in geneva in the um stage play and in the film if you need me i shall be in australia literally (laughs) as far the fuck away from here as i could possibly get so one assumes the phantoms visited him threatened him and he's gone yep nope not doing this anymore and sold it to these two guys who worked in uh junk trade scrap Scrap metal metal. Uh, Kieran Hines and uh, uh, Simon Callow playing fantastically these two kind of bickering uh, uh, businessmen who, I mean, it's kind of a thankless task, but they have one or two really great little songs and exchanges to sort of punctuate the the front end of the opera side of it. The like this is the this is the Hollywood business type side of this is the Harry Turtletaub uh, of uh, the, of the BoJack opera. What what you're laughing? What no what? Okay, right. She's just seen a list that I've got here. It's interesting that you ask what the Phantom's done before. Because this... <laughs> because this it's worth pointing out before you start, no, we as the audience don't know about any of this at this stage. <laughs> yes. 
Um, because Phantom is positioned as a romantic figure, and um, there's this was problematic back in the 80s a little bit. It's a lot more problematic now because we think more deeply into things and we examine shitty behavior, specifically shitty male behavior, and we are less inclined to excuse it. So there's whole major characters who have recently been brought up and torn to shreds. To shreds, you say? Uh, for doing uh, shit, similarly shitty things. But the Phantom's crimes within this film, we don't know about the stuff that happened that uh, off camera, include, let's start with grooming a young girl. Because that's the whole ew element of this. Because, like, when the, the Phantom's older than Christine, let's just say that he's 30, if, shall if we? If we go on the principle that he's a little bit younger than Madame Giry. Yeah. And when Christine comes to live at the Opera House, she's seven. And Giry effectively steps into the role of her mother. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, the Phantom has to be at least in his early 20s. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe very late teens, but she's seven, so there is a distinct age difference, which is not healthy. Gerard Butler was thirty-three at this point, and mm. she was seventeen. Yeah. Um, another thing, just mentioning Madame Giry, by the way, um, Miranda Richardson, who we've praised to the high heavens on the show when uh, we talked about her in uh, Sleepy Hollow. Joel Schumacher, by the, I keep doing this diversion thing where I, I like, jump to uh, Miranda Richardson, then jump to uh, Joel Schumacher. But it's, it, well, I'll bring us back, I promise. Joel Schumacher is one of my favourite directors to hear speak. I may not love all of his films or even many of his films, but as directors go, he's really relaxing to hear talk. He's so kind of, you know, uh, um, personable about the way he uh, uh, refers to things and it feels like you could be calm in a room with him and also my, passionate yeah my personal fondness for him revolves around the fact that pe- when people talk about him they talk about his vision as a director mm. and the fact that he has these very specific ideas about what he wants things to be but nobody ever talks about him being an aggressive dick which most directors who the backup line is oh but he has such a strong vision for things usually that's following him chasing some poor sod around the set with a stick yeah, he's got a really strong vision. He's just a shit about it. Yeah. Whereas Joel Schumacher, not so Schumacher, much. is like I, you know, I've got this vision, and if I could just take you up here with me, mm. and when I when I met with Miranda Richardson, it was I've told her it's the only meeting I ever had with an actor where I felt she was auditioning me. She she met me at the hotel, and we had breakfast together, and she had a list of about 100 questions that she asked me. And it was, it was a great... I loved it. But when she left, I said to the producers, I don't think she's going to do this. I think, I think... And then she said yes. So I guess I passed the test. So that was great. It is all the more commendable that he managed to carve out a career in the 80s and 90s as an out gay director. She she says eventually to Raoul, you know, he's a, he's a genius. He he can do everything. He can he can compose. Um, he he's a he's a designer. He's um, I think he's an architect. And uh, I remember adding, he's a magician because he is because he's he's inhabited the theatre. He's inhabited the life of the theatre, and he's he's learned. His whole life is theatrical. His whole life is sort of unreal in a way. And um, I think there's an element of, of, of that that Madame Giry actually, actually adores, you know. Miranda Richardson looked at the way Giry is performed in the stage play, which is like this 
she described her as an exclamation mark, which mm-hmm. is brilliant because she's just this, this walking stick that defines her. You know that Guillermo del Toro thing of everyone having a, a, a prop? A prop. Mm. This walking stick is always what Madame Giri has. The first thing we see Madame Giri doing once the new owners get here, if you remember, she's got one leg all the way up for a ballet stance uh, and it's propped up on, the, uh, on a bar. So she's at, uh, at 90 degrees there to illustrate her flexibility rather than her simply being this rod. And... Richardson plays her enigmatically the whole way through, but never in any kind of, you know, I'm trying to keep secrets and I don't care who this hurts. Just she's juggling behind the scenes mm. to try to uh, to keep things together. And then it's she's magnificent at it. Anyway. Yeah, and I think she absolutely believes the best of the Phantom right up until the point where it's mm. no longer possible to do that. She still yeah. sees him as that little boy that she took in and protected yeah. and, and sees him as someone that she needs to look after. Absolutely. So the first thing the Phantom does is groom a young girl, as in he sort of brings her up and, and, and sort of goes, well, you know, your voice is fantastic and, and develops an infatuation with her, which clearly grows as she grows older and grows more mature as a, as a, a, a person and a, and a girl. And she's kind of blossoming at this point. And there's like there's that ick factor which you can't escape from. So that's just the first thing, and that's like a major problematic side of this. There's other things that Phantom does throughout this escapade. Um, many elements not cool, especially by today's standards: spying, stalking, extortion, kidnapping, murder, causing an affray. A prior unconvicted murder committed as a child, defiling a crypt, dueling, astonishing levels of gaslighting, more murder, chandelier vandalism, and making a weird model of Christine in a bridal gown. (laughs) Which might be the worst. I'd let him off for the childhood murder, but those others are all very strong points. I can't argue with them. (laughs) Yeah. So so we're not not advocating any of these things as positive on the Phantom's part. No, and I actually think that that one significant thing about the way the Phantom's introduced here, which, and and I'm going to be honest and say, I could be reading this in a completely different way to everybody else, Um, but you've got the, the juxtaposition between... Raoul coming to see Christine after her performance and they have a little bit of a sing-song together and the harmonising between them kind of reinforces that sense of them being very compatible with each other. They're revisiting this childhood that they had together and you need that to overcome Raoul's, frankly, bullish behaviour over Christine's objections to going out to dinner with him because he's like, oh no no no, we're going to dinner we're going and she's like no 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 no, I really can't oh no 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 two minutes get changed I'll go and get the horses and it's like okay I know you're a nice guy Raoul but this is a little bit yeah come on that's not on however you do again need Raoul to be the okay guy at this point because then the introduction of the phantom his his first real appearance kind of has this sense of self-involvement and abusiveness and he locks the door so that Christine can't get out of the dressing room. He takes credit for her performance. He's talking about the fact that this this is the voice that he created. And I did it, hey. generally being a patronising dick, he does not open well. <laughs> 
But I think, honestly, that that kind of is, is part of the appeal of this for me because that way he's got somewhere to go. If he came in, and, and this is often the way that it feels in the stage show, he comes in as the romantic hero who Christine adores and puts all of her um, all of her investment mm. into. From there, he can only get worse. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? If he if he kind of opens as uh, you're a bit questionable, at least then the balance between he has positive points and and there are you know good elements to his character has chance to come through. It indicates that the film disapproves of him immediately. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Which again, as I said, in two thousand and four, you kind of need. Hmm. Well, I have to say, I do actually have a similar list of uh, Raoul's uh, th- all the things that he's done that piss me off in the okay. film. Okay, <laughs> um, I will it. say that they're obviously not as bad as the Phantom's crimes because he doesn't actually kill anyone, mm. but he just fucks me off. Yeah. So <laughs> that's fair enough. Go for it. Right, so, okay, first of all, he steals the flowers from the owners to give to Christine, so he passes them off as his own. Like, what not cool, man. You can buy your own fucking flowers. Like, it's you're true. obviously really rich. rich. But yeah. he's wealthy. That's what they do. When you're wealthy, you don't this have to buy things. This is why they're wealthy. They steal everything so from everybody. They're rude. And he's like, oh, thanks very much, gentlemen. Like, fuck Cheers. you, man. Get your own flowers. <laughs> he, so he walks in. He doesn't knock. He just walks straight in. She could have been getting changed in there. She could have been, I don't know doing anything in there and he just walks right in Ooh, and then he has a whole Trumpy. conversation where he doesn't listen to anything she says he's just like oh it's great remember when we had those picnics in the attic that's nice let's go to supper <laughs> and it's like it's such a kind of change like she's just literally told him I've got this angel of music that sings to me you, you, you don't want to explore that at all you're just like oh that's nice and now we go to supper do we Rel do we go to supper <laughs> I think we do <laughs> So then they, he goes off to get the horses, leaves her alone, and then there's later on, he obviously keeps telling her, when she's, she keeps trying to tell him about this phantom, and he's like, no, there's no phantom, it's just a dream, it, you're just imagining it, and it's like, dude, that's not helpful. Mm. Do you think a dream, like, canned that guy? Like, there's something hinky going on here, but keep telling your girlfriend that she's imagining it, that's super helpful, we all love to be gaslighted. And then when she's telling him that she's scared at the end of the film, and he's like, oh, you've said yourself he's nothing but a man... Again, not particularly helpful. He's a much bigger, stronger, scary man that she knows has murdered people. So mm. I don't really find that very comforting. Yeah. And then there's the times that he leaves her. Like, he leaves her at the masquerade to go and get his sword. I mean, could have taken her with him, but no, he's just going to go and, and get his sword and run back while she's being terrorised by him. And then at the end, using her as bait on the stage, which makes more sense, actually, in the play because you don't have the fight in the graveyard mm. but because you have the fight in the graveyard here it's like well you had him right there but you left him so now yeah. you're going to use your girlfriend as bait it's mm. kind of iffy it is yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah christine's like not like this and ralph's like you're right let's put everyone in danger <laughs> then i can stab him, him on stage yeah. <laughs> oh and every prayer rests on you now christine oh thanks Raoul. that's just what i wanted to hear the so pressure wow. begins absolutely fantastic <laughs> you know you are absolutely not wrong michaela and i think that the the text of Raoul is is bad it is pretty bad. And he's I think, played very well in the film, and I think that is, kind of yeah. makes up for it. But I when think, you look at what he does, I'm like, oh, mate, no. Yeah, yeah. you kind of need that performance from Wilson and all the little vulnerabilities and, and characterizations that he brings to it are very absolutely so. essential for this character not to come off as a flouncy shirt-wearing annoyance. It's important. Yeah. I can note, mention this now, and then we will never speak of it again. Uh, the... Uh, 
the technical sequel to this show is called Love Never Dies, and uh, it was uh, it was on the stage. Uh, it it is about uh, Raoul and Christine in later life, married, miserable. They have what? a son, and then Christine meets the Phantom in a bar, and <laughs> <laughs> and like. She's propping up the bar and the Phantom's like, hey, I remember you. Was it like singles night or something? Basically, yeah. I think it was speed dating and she was like, oh, fucking old boyfriend. Again, obviously this was going to happen. Anyway, it is a fucking wretched show and I hate it. (laughs) So nobody recommend it to me, please, folks. Um, Again, there's going to be people who are like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Alex. That's my favourite Phantom. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's easy to head cannon out, uh, much like uh, a- any um, uh, sequel that you don't want to uh, acknowledge. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, that specifically, the Raoul you're describing there, the boorish prick... Uh, it, it, I could very easily see ending up uh, in a loveless marriage with Christina. They, they thought that it was going to work out great, but it didn't. This guy, the overbearing Raoul from the 25th anniversary Blu-ray, Hadley Fraser. This next line is supposed to be about comforting support. Let me be your shelter. Let me be your light. You're safe. No one can find you. Your fears are far behind you. He sounds like a complete cock. Uh, so, um, yeah, let's, let's forget that, because uh, it didn't happen. Because we're focusing on the much sweeter, this version of Raoul. Now. Yeah, I totally believe in the happy ending. I'm just going to ignore the sequel. Mm. Headcanon rules. Melancholy happy ending. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, we finally, after about 53 minutes of recording, get to <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera song. The... the, the when the phantom takes her down into his underworld and uh, it's a it's a very sort of symbolic journey that is not to be taken too literally because the phantom is like sort of the the king of magic tricks so what you see cannot necessarily be believed so he leads her on a horse and it's like was there a horse there i love that there's a horse there was supposed to be a horse in the stage show but it wasn't supposed to be a live horse it was supposed to be like a pantomime cow gets me more than the fact that it's a horse is that it's a horse for such a short duration of the journey like, right we got to go down to the docks do you want to walk or do you want this horse i'll have the horse yeah thank and you. the horse takes her from this end of the corridor to that end of the <laughs> corridor and then she's going to get in a boat anyway it's like you weren't going to be walking miles after down this a, you probably could have done that down a slippery her. slope she could pull a hamstring okay. well that's true. so um yeah but again i feel like it's that the phantom has been planning this for a long time like you know at some point i am going to reveal my lair to you mm. and i'm going to give you stuff that i know you like that the thing about you know the 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 when we read to each other dark stories of the North, Christine is something of a goth. Mm. So she actually really likes the decor that the Phantom brings up. She doesn't sort of get down to his subterranean lair full of candles and mirrors and gilded drapery and go, oh, it's all dusty and creepy and weird. Here's a clip from the original 1986 stage play with Steve Barton and Sarah Brightman as Raoul and Christine. I always loved their delivery on this. They seemed close. And it was spine tingling. Little Marty, let your mind wander. Remember that too. 
So when Phantom brings Christine down into his basement of goth ephemera, she's entranced by this whole thing. So having Dobbin there definitely helped mm, because a, a lot of young girls you know, tend to like horses. Especially gothic heroines. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and there's also a lot of, uh, you mentioned b- before the, the layer upon layer, mm. there is a lot of heaven and hell imagery in yeah. this. He's, he is Sharon. He ferries her yeah. across the lake yeah. to the... Um, to the Bed made out of a swan. Yeah, <laughs> which is very right Virginia next. Andrews. Oh my god! I <laughs> yes. Oh like, my yeah. god! I didn't think anybody would get that if I mentioned that. But yes, it really is. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep, that's the Castiles right there. It is. Oh my god! Yes. Fantastic. Flowers in the basement. <laughs> no. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Insolent boy, this leave of fashion. Basking in your glory Ignorant fool This brave young suitor Sharing in my triumph And when I hear you speak I listen Stay by my side Guide me
really like that she uh, even has her eyeshadow changed to kind of uh, portray her sort of journey to the darker side. Yes. I mean, I don't know when she had time to do that, but I, I respect it. Well, he stopped That's what she was on the horse Before for. the horse, he was like, <laughs> do you want to change your eyeshadow? Because we're going down to my basement. But that, that kind of emphasises... It totally de-romanticises him if he's talking about that. <laughs> it does a bit. There is a full-on... 80s rock music video sensibility going on here. And I will admit that this is in part informed by the fact that until Alex took me to see the stage show in 2001, my main interaction with Phantom of the Opera was Uh, the Sarah Brightman music video. Directed by... Ken Russell, uh, Ken Russell of the Devils. Yeah. And it's very late seventies, early eighties. In that, not only does she change her eyeshadow, mm-hmm. she gets a full-on Egyptian-style gold sheath dress oh, and yeah. headdress. Yes. So, I, where that came from, I've got no idea. It's crazy. How is it exactly her size? And the Phantom, it, like, sees her her mulleted. 80s looking Raoul in the audience going, hey, giving her the thumbs up and goes, right, fuck you, mate. I'm going to cut the chandelier cord. <laughs> and then the chandelier just falls on Raoul and then she just sort of screams and ah, and blood dribbles down. Yeah. So I it's not very thought, subtle. I always thought that's how it ended. Brilliant. So we well, go. I'm glad I could I'm very take you to the real deal. You could. But the, that you have, that kind of music video environment... But with the fart rock in this song, the. <laughs> 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 I 
in the eighties. Come on. Yeah, but they managed to keep most of the rest of this free of fart yeah, rock. They did. They did. It's Andrew Lloyd Webber for goodness' sake. There's got to be some. Yeah, he was busy um, doing Starlight Express at the, the time. The, We're lucky that it weren't roller skates. <laughs> the framing of this bit and how the camera moves around. I, I haven't got very... horse this time. We got roller skates to go down the. <laughs> Sorry. It's a it's a very drugged and confusing environment, oh, yeah. and it's apparent that Christine is not entirely sure what's going on. All of her focus is on the Phantom, um, but the fact that we have the camera mostly on her face, most of the focus is on her, so that allows us as the audience to engage with her adoration of him, the mm. trust, the faith that she is putting in him to get her to wherever it is he's taking her safely, in spite of the fact that they are surrounded by <laughs> all the dry ice in the world. <laughs> and she's got no idea what she's walking through. I think he just couldn't be bothered to clean the carpet, you know. Set the dry ice up, nobody's going to notice. Um, hey, don't step in that. So, yeah. And the real opera house in Paris actually does have a flooded basement. It's got this sense of mystery and labyrinthine quality down there. I love that. And the real opera house has this great gilded angel at the top so it's got heaven up there and held Hell the underworld down, down there but it's a dark underworld rather than a sort of a you know, bright red version so that version of hell comes about in uh, Point of No Return when it's more like Don Giovanni so you've got you know much more the sort of flame mm. motif well he brings I mean in fact no I won't say that here I'll, I'll save that till later um, but yeah, I think it's it's it is really important at this point that you do see as much of Christine's perspective as you can because gothic heroines, and I I say this as somebody who is besotted with gothic heroines, um, or, or certainly was for a sizable duration of my adolescence and early twenties, they walk a very fine line between um, being presented as someone who you comprehend and have empathy for um, the fact that their their desires are always very intense and then that's com- kind of combined with a lack of experience which means that if you're going to like them you have to understand that their choices are not always great and that doesn't make them bad people mm. um, and Kathy in Wuthering Heights is another great example of this the a, a gothic heroine story that works for me is one where you get that incredible, focused, passionate, obsessive love, which is simultaneously, oh, this is a bad idea, and, but I totally understand how she feels within it, that it is it is giving her life. She has come from a childhood which is cold, damp, boring, poor, whatever the reasons are that she has not felt like she has ever been able to be truly alive. And then along comes this guy who is ridiculously bad for her, but gives her something that, that lights her up inside. And by the end of the story, it's like she, it's going to be a tragedy if she ends up with him, things will go disastrously wrong. So a better way of playing them out is for a, a a better version of that relationship to be shown. And I, I do think that Phantom manages it. Wuthering Heights manages it, albeit that it has to show it through other people. Generationally exactly. as well. But, but that's the kind of story where I think the Gothic heroine really comes into her own. Otherwise, 
you run the risk of presenting her as somebody who is going to be seen as uh, um, aspirational by half your audience and insipid and boring by the other half. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's kind of important as well to remember, you know, how young Christine is. Mm. Yeah. Like she's, she's so young and she's just sort of kind of growing up and coming into her own and kind of discovering her own sexuality and all of this. You've got all those hormones flying around. We all remember that age. It's completely bonkers. Yeah. And she's, and she, and you know, like you say, she's had this <laughs> poor, horrible, difficult upbringing. And then along comes this guy who tells her that she's special and she's amazing and he's all kind of mysterious and magic and he can do weird things with candles and he has a horse <laughs> like, oh, do, you, do you like this? I can do this with candles <laughs> like waterproof candles man come on I would absolutely. be intrigued yeah no yeah. you're absolutely right and the, it's a the neat whole, trick the whole set design down here it just screams passion you've got reds the candles the velvet the lace the fur the swan it's, yeah. it's just all of this, like, an interior designer would look at this and go, oh, my God, how much gold paint did you have to use up? But, as you say, to a, a young girl who has not been exposed to this kind of opulence, um, it, albeit Christine has in a kind of a, um, a stagey, set-dressing-y kind of way, but this is how he lives. Yeah, I mean, the guy is basically a cross between, like, Batman and the Joker. Mm. Yeah, there is a little bit of that. And at the moment, he's all kind of Mr. Billowy Coat, King of Pain, and that's always kind of hot when you're that age. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit. <laughs> and then you get older and you lose the patience for it. But, you know, as a kind of 16-year-old, yeah, you should be all over that. Mm. Yeah, I completely see that. And There's a reason why this is an abidingly, incredibly popular musical. It didn't just fade away. It's, mm. it's still got huge fans. Mm, absolutely. Plus, this song as well comes directly after she's just had her first real conversation with Raoul in like a decade, and he's been a bit of a dick. Yeah. So yes. like... he's, he's not offered her a huge amount there. Mm. So obviously this is going to look really good by comparison. She's also uh, she's disregarding immediate obvious riches. Raoul's easy. You just, mm-hmm. you know, you, you make flutter your eyes at him and go, Remember those chocolates and the stories of the North and the goblins and the shoes and things? And he goes, right, can you marry me? Yes, I can. And then suddenly you're the Viscountess. Suddenly you're the Viscountess. <laughs> Easy. But Christine doesn't want money, which again, she's, like, she's going for more of an internal exploration here. And speaking of internal exploration, that mm-hmm. nicely leads me into... Off you go. Um, right, Okay. <laughs> Now, I've said this to people before and they've gone, no, it's definitely all real. It's not all inside her head. And I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. It's a metaphor. Inside um, your mind. So, it's right there. So this is, this is my take on The Phantom of the Opera, particularly this film. And this is one of the reasons why, in spite of its slightly mixed messages about the healthiness of certain types of relationships, mm-hmm. I really, really like it. You know I have a tendency to look at uh, particularly overblown, hyper-real stories as something that you can interpret in a kind of a dreamlike way. And that one of the fundamental elements of that is seeing various characters as um, facets of a central person. So a take that I really like to read into this is the phantom being a manifestation of what is effectively, from a Jungian perspective, Christine's shadow. 
Okay, he is um, symbolic of her unresolved grief over her father, which is why there are various elements of him that have manifested to her as at one point believing that he actually may be her father, uh, certainly believing that he is an angel that's been sent by her father to continue to train her because he's no longer there to be able to do it. It's one of the hooks that he uses to get into her in the in the reality side of this. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. but he then kind of becomes this incompletely integrated internal parent, by which I mean he represents a form of confidence and authority that as a, a girl getting older and turning into a woman, she needs to learn and incorporate into her character. But because of her naivety because of her circumstances and the fact that she lost her real father at such a young age she isn't able to do that in a healthy way so she's externalizing it into this uh, bold dangerous learned genius who will provide her with a very weird kind of protection but the bargain that comes with that is going to cost her very highly um, so this this sort of leaning on him providing her with a combination of authority and excitement allows her to pretend that she can um, that she doesn't have to have that internal parent because she can have it in somebody who's outside of herself and that intercuts with the developing relationship that she's got with Raoul and i think that the fact he's uh, the phantom sorry his behavior starts to become more and more abusive triggered by Raoul's presence because this this guy's turned up who she knew specifically not just as a child but also before her father died mm. so Raoul carries with him memories of when her father was alive yeah. so it kicks off this uh this shadow side of herself into a fight to um to kind of claim and possess her her little girl self her her internal self that is desperately at this point trying to mature trying to grow up trying to become a young woman Um, And there's a a very brilliant moment towards the end where that really starts to happen, which I'll talk about in a bit. Um, But yeah, so that basically is my my kind of take on how the characters in this interact. So you've got Christine as the self, the Phantom as the shadow, and Raoul in this particular version has a, a role as... The animus, the the sword. He's, you know, he's Christine's arm. He fights for her when she can't fight for herself, and and that's sort of a healthier way for that side of herself to manifest. Phantom's major song here now comes through as uh, music of the night. Now, this is his. While Angel of Music is uh, him at his most fatherly and benevolent and uh, almost patronising, music of the night is him trying to show her the beauty inside his soul he's trying to show her his softer side he's he he uses the song effectively to overwhelm her he makes her pass out because of the sheer passion of this song and also you know being confronted with this weird dummy of herself which I always think that's a great way to get out of what do you do when you're confronted with a dummy of yourself (laughs) I don't know so I'm just gonna faint and deal with it later (laughs) yes 
Yes, there's also the outside possibility that he's drugged her at this stage. We yeah. know he works with chemicals. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that never crossed my mind. That's so gross. But uh, at the same time, like, while it is a very sensual relationship, it never feels like he's going to very deliberately take advantage of her and just you know, grab and take her. At the very end, he gets close to just being really forceful and like, you know, mm. fuck it. This is what you've got. But... Uh, up until that point, he's very much like he puts her to bed in this swan, and then, like, it, interestingly, in the um, uh, uh, the stage show, he plays this really horrible organ that sounds like this. And weirdly, he is actually composing here. This turns up in Don Juan Triumphant near the end. It just sounds horrible. <laughs> it's genius musician, huh? Yeah. It's like imagine being woken up by that. <laughs> but music of the night is a strangely innocent seduction when placed in direct comparison with Past the Point of No Return, which is much more sexual. Again, it's it's that one that, that just snares the audience and just gets you, if not so much on side with the Phantom, very much like, okay, so you've done the I'm the great big Phantom, and you've done the, you know, a wandering child. Da, 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 da. But the music of the night is this... You know, there's other sides to me. There's this, and you know, what I'm presenting you with here is this sort of, you know, you know, this wonderful dream and being able to achieve things that just regular people can't possibly achieve. That this this journey with me will blow your fucking mind is what he's saying. I do actually really love this one. It's mm. very uh, kind of passionate, but it still feels kind of safe. Like, it's a very passionate, seductive song, but you don't actually feel at any point that she's in danger from him in any way. Yeah, no, he's trying to impress her rather than take her. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The the real obsessive possessiveness hasn't Mm. really kicked in yet at this stage. I have brought you to the seat of sweet music's throne To this kingdom where all must pay homage to Abandon their defenses 
So he puts her to sleep softly and then wakes her up with his organ. Though in the film he doesn't because they're trying to keep him sexy. Not that kind of organ. And after she's woken up by that horrible uh, alarm clock thing, um, you get Stranger Than You Dreamt It, which is she decides that the best thing to do now that she's down in this guy's basement is to take his mask off. I agree. Yeah? I agree. It goes horribly wrong, don't get me wrong, but... She says, who was that shape in the shadows? Whose is the face in the mask? She's saying, you know, who are you? I want to know who you are. Like, she's known him for years now. Mm -hmm. Take off this mask. And, you know, she takes it off for him and he goes fucking nuts. Yes, he does. But how can you love someone properly Mm. if they won't let you see their scars? That's what she's trying to do. She's trying to reach out and make a proper connection with him at that point. Plus, she did sing by and warn him, you know. <laughs> I'm about to I'm do, gonna do it. <laughs> Under those circumstances, I mean, like, he's quite evasive with her anyway. Like, if, you, if you watch the actual blocking in the stage play, she actually starts to go for the mask mm. earlier on, I think, during Music of the Night, and he just sort of, like, turns away from her in a kind of, nope. Kind of like it's almost like a strip tease. She's like, nope, nope, you're not seeing under there. But his reaction is totally overblown. And actually, that's reminded yeah. me of what I was going to say before that went completely out of my ear, mm, okay. for which I do apologise. Um, which is that as we learn about his his childhood and how he ended up here in the first place, it's worth bearing in mind that the only relationships he's ever seen play out are opera ones. Everything he knows, he's learned from observing what goes on on that stage. Mm. So that over-vivid, hyper-real, everything incredibly intense, tragedy, destruction, passion, obsession, that's what he's absorbed. That's what he's learned. Nobody has ever been able to teach him that there is another way to do things. That's a really good point, actually. And I kind of relate a little bit to that, having been brought up in quite a fundamentalist religion and then Mm. trying to learn how to have relationships through TV and books, possibly not the best idea. But Although, least, obviously, I didn't murder anyone, so well, I, no. I did so quite you, well. I was going to say, you clearly picked the right TV and books. But this is the thing, TV, books and, and film and that kind of thing, because you, you could argue that there is a um, a slight inclination towards us growing up that way now, since since maybe the 80s. We've absorbed an awful lot of popular culture in terms <clears> of, of learning how to interact with the world. But there's a range in TV and in books and in film that, there isn't really an opera. Yeah. yeah. All the opera fans listening are just like, blah, 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 blah. not listening to this anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry, hey, opera fans. I used we to... are ignorant fools in this regard. <laughs> I used to date an opera singer. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs>
crying Pandora! You little demon! This is what you wanted to see! Curse you! You little lying Delilah! You little viper! Now you cannot ever be free! Damn you! Curse you! Uh, after he uh, goes ballistic at her and, and, and sings Stranger Than You Dreamt It, uh, he's, in fact, he's almost teasing her and saying, this is the thing that you're stuck with now. This is the horrible side of me. And But at the same time, like most phantoms that I've seen keep it on the down low. They keep it, you know, like I say, serpentine rather than... Str- like there's the, damn you, they scream and shout. And then there's that kind of... There's a, a, a sourness to Stranger Than You Dreamt It mm. in a kind of, well, you were going to find out anyway eventually. Yeah. This is me, sweetheart. But again, the outburst, which, you know, that, that meltdown comes early and it's ultimately the, the reason that that is painful, I think, is that he's punishing Christine for a natural curiosity, a natural impulse, which, again, is partly born of her, her childlike innocence, which is one of the things he likes about in the first place you can't have it both ways dude um yeah. but also the the way he sort of then segues into the recovery from that does at least indicate that his initial reaction is born of fear and shame i think shame well. absolutely and because, self-disgust yeah, and, yeah. and his his assumption is that having seen that she is going to retreat from him and he is trying to to kind of mm. put his defenses back in place yeah. There is a snap around at the. He gets to the end of like. Well, the end of the song is is basically you know who seems a beast but secretly dreams of beauty secretly. He's trying to say I may look like this, but I I imagine I dream beautiful things that go beyond this, and in his eyes, my foulness, my corruption is why I am drawn to you and your purity. He seeks that purity in himself, and he knows he's capable of beauty, but as far as he's concerned, the rest of the world will only loathe him. Stranger than you dreamt it, can you even dare to look or bear to think of me, this loathsome gargoyle who burns in hell but secretly yearns for heaven secretly secretly christine fear can turn to love you learn to see to find the man behind the monster this Repulsive carcass who seems a beast but secretly dreams of beauty. Secretly, secretly. Oh, Christine. And Christine slowly, apologetically, gives him back his mask and he puts it back on. And then adopts a sensibility of, let's just pretend that never happened, shall we? Which is an attitude I am very guarded against. And then he ends up on just 
uh, uh, three versions of Butler says, Come, we must return. Those two fools who run with Fiatra <laughs> will be missing you. Come, we must return. Those two fools who run my theatre will be missing you. Karimlu, the one from the 25th anniversary, is like, Come, we must return! Those two fools who run my theatre! And he's just doing it the same way as he always does. And Crawford, who I think for many people is this untouchable phantom, like no one's ever going to do better than him, does this weird little sing-song, Come, we must return! Those two fools who run my theatre will be missing you! Come, we must return! Those two fools who run my theatre will be missing you. And it's almost like he's just like, you know, let's not speak any more of this. Come on, move on. And uh, that's where the whole gaslighting mm-hmm. thing comes let's through. Let's sweep like, all of that under the carpet and pretend it never happened. And <clears throat> so. After gala night, it says mystery of soprano's flight. Mystified, all the papers say. We are mystified, we suspect foul play. Bad news on soprano scene. First Carlotta, now Christine. Still, at least the seats get sold. Gossip's worth its weight in gold. Notes sung by Andre and Furman. It's like after all this super passion from Phantom, just slalloming between sing for me and you know, help me make the music. You know, suddenly you've got this. It's a bit Mozarty. I'm not much, you know, of a, 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 a. I'm not too knowledgeable about classical music, but there's a, 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 a wit to this back and forth. There's a lot of crosstalk during notes where a lot of people sort of turn up and go, "What is the meaning of all of this?" Raoul's like, "Where was Christine?" Carlotta's turning up and going, "What the fuck happened?" And um, eventually, Carlotta is like, "Okay, so Christine's disappeared." You know, do you want me? Because, you know, I'm the star, remember? And then they come out with Prima Donna, which is uh, a song kind of in celebration of, of Carlotta. And this is kind of them trying to bring the opera back to something manageable and sort of like smooth over the cracks. Just sort of eliminate the whole phantom element. Christine seems like she might be more trouble than she's worth. And it's like, well, let's just go back with Carlotta. That was working before all of this Angel of Music stuff happened. And we're getting all these letters from this weird creep now. So, like, before I was passing it off, and now I'm asking for, he's asking for 20,000 francs. On a side note, and Lyra asked this... What the flip is he spending 20,000 francs on per month? <laughs> candles? Well, buying the basement, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> like, all those candles coming out of the water. It's not going to happen by itself. Yeah. Lyra said hay to and feed the horse. the horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very expensive horses. <laughs> they are indeed, yes. Oh, I hear. I wouldn't know. Donkey. <laughs> Um, but I mean, I mean, I'm assuming like he does a lot of like magic and illusion and stuff. But something about the fa- the way the Phantom lives and the way the Phantom dresses, um, even down to this uh, kind of Oriental um, jacket and hat that he wears. You know, when he plays that 
terrible organ when he wakes her up in the stage show that he definitely doesn't wear in in in, in this film. It feels like he scavenged this from the opera. Mm, Not that he's buying it. Yeah. Like he's just wandering around the opera populaire, populated by hundreds of people going, "This jacket is now my jacket," and walks <laughs> off with it. And like, you don't need 20,000 francs. What, why is he playing well, extortion? I did actually wonder if he, if he was giving money to Madame Giry. That's a, that's a lot of francs, though. Yeah. I mean... But it might also explain why she's emphasising the fact that his salary's not been paid. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> yes, actually. Yeah. So I've got to go and buy you 2,000 francs worth of gunpowder. What are you going to do, Eric? His name, by the way... Is Eric. Eric. Eric yeah. No one ever says it, but Eric's like a really <laughs> primo name <laughs> for a dark, like, you know, soul of a, of a guy. Like, you know, you're Eric Lenshire from X Men, you got Eric Killmonger from uh, uh, Black Panther. It's a great name. Eric for- from The Little Mermaid, yeah. <laughs> okay, he's the exception. Uh, un- unless maybe in the Disney remake he'll have a dark side. Eric from Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, okay, he is also. <laughs> Fine, fine. <laughs> but if you want a good name for a, a, a dark sort of, you know, brooding character, Eric, Eric's a good one for you. But yeah, um, one assumes Madame Giry's buying him some stuff, but I, I would also uh, imagine that that if they checked around in the basement, there's a lot of Franks just sitting there, just stuffed into a mattress. <laughs> Into the swan bed. Into the swan, Into the swan bed. Absolutely. That's why it's got to be a swan, because if the basement properly floods, it's got to be able to float, otherwise he's broke. <laughs> yeah. Um, then we move on to another of the operas, which this time stars Carlotta rather than Christine, because uh, even though the Phantom suggested that Carlotta play the page boy, who is a mute, and which makes my casting in a word ideal. ideal. Um, I just want to point out at this point, by the way, he has got a disturbingly detailed um, <laughs> yeah. diorama of this this opera that's going to happen with removable heads with removable heads i put in my notes what the fuck is with these removable heads it's so you can recast i mean who among us has not made little dolls of our annoying colleagues so we can take their heads (laughs) off at the end of the day and then it's perfectly normal now you're the assistant manager assistant to the manager um (laughs) and yeah it's this is what twenty thousand francs a month buys you lots of dioramas (laughs) very detailed dioramas and also this this is only a tiny thing, but he seals his letters with this dark red wax and this skull seal. And I was like, oh, that's so badass. And then he just sort of puts the waxy, wet skull seal directly on the tabletop. And I'm like, well, just don't put it there. It's going to leave a waxy stub right there on your table. Oh, f- forget it. It's fine. Whatever. 20,000 francs will buy you a lot of wax remover. Also, I don't want to be the practical person, mm-hmm. but that wax seal is remarkably impractical. The skull is so 3D mm-hmm. and rounded yeah. off the page that the wax in the middle of it would remain molten. Yeah. Well, 
Impractical is kind of the Phantom's middle name. It is his bag, isn't it? Eric Impractical Phantom. So Il Muto is kind of a, it's a parody of the operas that were popular at the time. And um, so everyone's wearing like hundreds of hundred year old at the time Regency gear. So these great big powdered wigs mm. and uh, it it's, feels very pantomime-ish There's yeah a lot of sort of widow twanky he's behind you stuff yeah and it's, again it feels like uh, shakespeare's midsummer night's dream and a bunch of other shakespeare comedies where people pretend to be other people and dress as someone else mm. shakespeare drew heavily from the theatrical storytelling tropes of the ancient greeks and mozart in turn lifted from shakespeare for productions like The Magic Flute, which, by the way, had Simon Callow in it for in Amadeus. Um, oh. a, a rich a, a countess is seeing her page boy on the side, and Christine is cast as the page boy this time. Though I would happily take the maid myself. And the, <laughs> we haven't mentioned him, but the, the um, soprano is uh, Piangi. He's like Carlotta's... Uh, no, soprano is the high-singing female. What's the oh. name of the lead guy? His name is Pianchi. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is there a... Oh, the tenor? tenor? Tenor. Okay. The tenor... Sorry, I am a complete ignoramus regarding opera and classical music. Uh, the tenor Pianchi is this kind of... Like, he's, he's almost like Carlotta's pet. Hmm. And he's like, he's always the one. But you mentioned this before. It's like, it's a troupe with like 10 lead actors and they're good at playing this kind of role. So you get a lot of plays that very much position them as the same kind of character. Exactly. And And this is is the thing with sort of opera houses and rep theatre and, you know, this is what Shakespeare did. He had a stable of actors and he would write plays that fit with the characters that those actors were particularly good at playing. Shit, I do the same thing myself. I know. (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, this is effectively opera blockbuster of the day. (laughs) People complain that blockbusters are all the same. Operas were all the same. If you're going to deliver people consistent content every few weeks, it's going to feel a bit samey. Because if you give them different stuff, they don't like it. They riot, frankly. Yeah. You give them Stravinsky, they're going to be punching each other's top hats off. (laughs) If you have a few minutes, look up Stravinsky, Rite of Spring and Riot... And you'll see how he was the composer that basically made The Last Jedi of his day. So, back to the Phantom. Because he said he wanted uh, Christine to play the Countess and she ends up as the page boy, he decides to uh, send a rather more grievous message and uh, ends up strangling, hanging and flinging down the corpse of um, Joseph Bouquet, who we haven't mentioned before because he only exists in this to die. Uh, he's the guy who uh, uh, basically deals with the matte painting. He's the, yeah, he's the master of the flies. He's in yeah. charge of the stage background. And it's this... It's a great moment because it, it happens like that. there's... Um, he makes Carlotta um, sing like a, a, a little dod for, like, <laughs> by uh, uh, poisoning her... Um, mouth throat spray. throat spray thingy which makes her sort of which contracts her vocal cords which kind of disrupts the play and it's like that actually probably would have been enough but then during the ballet when there's this it's a pastoral ballet and this happens in the stage show there's a bunch of sheep and shepherdesses and a lady on a swing and it's just going and then this fucking corpse comes flying down on a noose and all the ballerinas scream and it's this 
part of the appeal of Phantom of the Opera is that they keep delivering you this sweet pablum and then when the Phantom turns up he just turns it all into this gothic rock opera and it's all fucked which I mean kind of one of the reasons why I didn't love um, Phantom of the Paradise so much is that the Phantom of the Paradise is actually a, a decent fellow who's completely hard done by it's, it, it's, it's kind of a fun film and you feel really sorry for him he is not a mass murderer and uh, doesn't uh, groom in any... Uh, he doesn't commit many of those crimes that uh, we mentioned above. Mm. And there is not nearly enough fart rock mm. and way too much electro. <laughs> I'm honestly he... still not actually clear on why the Phantom kills that guy because... Uh, bouquet, I should say. Mm. Uh, because it feels to me when I'm watching it as though his plan was just to kind of disrupt the play by yeah. messing with Carlotta, who he obviously doesn't like. Mm. And it feels like... The attack on Bouquet seems very unplanned. Mm. Like he just kind of startles him, and then for some reason he chases after Bouquet and then kills him. And I still don't really know yeah. why he did that. It seems very unnecessary. Mm. And a f- and a few more frames could have set it up that it's an accident, mm. um, because we've already had the uh, the this sort of secret code thing of keep your hand at the level of your eyes. Mm. Um, which which is, is never really explained in the stage show, but it's... it's, well, it's, and it's I had even, to Google that because yeah. I didn't get it at all. It's not even really explained. Keep your hand here, at the level of your... I mean, they, yeah, it's not. The, the rationale behind it is that the Phantom has a thing about nooses and lassoes. Oh, and he's you, got... He's well into the it. The idea being that if you walk around the stage... Um, he might just drop a noose around your neck and hang you. And this is this kind of plays into the stories that Bouquet's been telling to scare the girls anyway. Or he will catch you with his magical lasso. Indeed. But the theory would be that if you keep your hand up by your face, then if he drops the noose around you, it doesn't matter because you can just mm. lift it off. Um, but there's also kind of another layer of it where Giri repeats it back to him to Bouquet in kind of a, we both know what's going on here, so stop making this into bedtime stories to scare my girls. Also, if you keep your hand at the level of your eyes, it means that your peripheral vision is somewhat obscured. You're blinkered. Yes, however... Meaning that the Phantom can move about without you noticing him. But what it also means is that you've got your hand at a handy point to see what's going on in front of you when it's dark. Hmm. So, uh, to me, the the implication of that phrase, in at least in part, is you can trust what you can feel but don't trust what you're seeing. Mm. I could I can understand uh, him killing Joseph Bouquet in a rage if he saw that Christine was returning to Raoul very passionately at that point and he, he just mm. decided, fucking, I need to kill something right fucking now! Not that I would condone it, but I could understand that being a sort of cause and effect. Mm. However, it does seem a bit like he's trying to exert his control and flexing because people are dismissing him as uh, as just being uh, a kook. And, and, and they, they deliberately go out of their way to defy him. Mm. So he decides, right, I'll show you. Yeah. And I, I believe he oversteps the mark in I this case. I think so, yeah. And he, there is I actually... believe most murder would be considered overstepping the mark. <laughs> the exchange in Prima Donna, um, one of the managers, I'm not sure which one it is, actually says the or sings the line a chorus girl who's gone and slept with the patron so the implication being that they think that the reason Christine's being pushed to the fore is because she's boffing Raoul mm. which if the phantom overhears that yeah. and thinks that that's true that could also yeah. 
give a, a reason why he's kind of amping things up. The other issue with this is, of course, escalation. The Phantom didn't have to kill someone here. But now that he does, it means the next time he wants to bring the house down, he has to literally bring the house down. The next song is All I Ask of You. Christine, obviously, in the the side of a fucking corpse, uh, and knowing that the Phantom did that, and being very frightened that this guy who is obsessed with her, killed to seemingly get the attention of everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, runs to the roof in a panic and has to be calmed down by Raoul. And as you say, um, Michaela, he doesn't really listen to her too much, but he does kind of win things back by like singing this song, All I Ask of You. It's just, it transcends who he is. It's not about, I will give you a secure future. It's a very tender song. It's a very... um, understanding song and it's 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 very much the sort of i will be there to support you song yeah it's a very beautiful song actually and it absolutely has to be at this stage because the christine is at a very vulnerable point here when they first get the corpse of of bouquet she is compartmentalizing the shit out of this she's trying to reconcile the this wounded child that she encountered in, sort of within the phantom with somebody who is now an abusive adult outright murdering people and she kind of gets this this brightly lit corridor away from the darkness in the shape of Raoul. And given that at this point she feels like she's drowning, again, this this song working absolutely hinges on Raoul not being an arrogant douche, which yeah. the, the 2011 stage version, he's my worst Raoul because he's so um, sort of chin up and, um, and very... Uh, I, I don't know, it's difficult to put a finger on, but he he stomps around the stage doing the whole I'm the big I am thing, and it just doesn't work for me. Say you me one love, one lifetime. He reminds me of Steve Pemberton from The League of Gentlemen. A bit, yeah. Uh, a bit. And specifically playing Pauline, in, in, just in terms of, you know, <laughs> uh, like how pushy yeah. she can be. Yeah. Okie dokie, piggy a pokey! Good morning, job seekers! But there's there's two specific lines in this song that I think really sum up what this gets that previous iterations possibly haven't. And it's it's to do with the way they're delivered, because I'm assuming that these lines are in the earlier versions of the songs. But when Christine says, all I want is freedom, she knows what she wants to, to get out of this is to get away. And running to Raoul cannot be just another form of trap. Mm-hmm. It can't be trading one form of somebody being authoritative over her for another form of somebody being authoritative over her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really key to what, what she wants out of this. And the, uh, the anywhere you go, let me go too... He says that line first. He's following or he's allowing her to lead. And then they have the exchange of that line. Again, it puts their relationship on a very equal footing that they are saying they will follow each other. There's no, you know, you come with me and I will save you. It's Mm. you, you go first and I will come after you. And they're both saying that. Mm. Wide-eyed fears 
I'm here, nothing can harm you. My words will warm and calm you. Let me be your freedom. Let daylight dry your tears. I'm here with you, beside you, to guard you and to guide you. Let me.
And after this lovely, heartfelt, not to mention healthy expression of support for each other, they go off and she says, order your fine horses, be with them at the door. And it's like, okay, so we can escape from this. We can go and have a healthy life. And and, and this prison I've become trapped in, I can be free of. Mm. Like the the way the music goes in Phantom is very kind of classical romance. You know, it's got kind of a Hollywood golden age to it. There's also a lot of ocean-like uh, momentum to a lot of the songs that specifically in Masquerade, it's real. It grabs you and, and washes you up in it. And I, I, we, I had a friend who was annoyed that they kept playing songs more than once. All the songs sounded the same because they just kept bringing back bits from earlier songs. But th- that happens. That's how musical theatre works. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, it's like a signature, isn't it? Yeah, that happens a lot, especially in the second act but it's a really great way of re-establishing themes and juxtaposing themes especially when you switch who's singing them this first act is this really strong kind of establishment the second act is actually even better and it's because of how it develops what it's worked out already because of how it blends these songs in and how one song can then morph into another one from before as another reprise. Mm. And, you, you know, as characters become more desperate and things become darker, it really starts to heighten the stakes as well and get more personal. So, yeah, this is bridged by as Christine and Raoul leave and go off camera, the Phantom makes himself known and witnessed what he definitely cannot have a healthy normal relationship that is just loving and equal and without all of this ridiculous level of melodrama and without the darkness and without this the, the whole you know if if you if if i'm involved in it then this terrible face has got to be in there too and this mind of mine and schumacher chose the rose to be I don't know whether this happens in the play. I've never seen it happen because what happens in the in the in the play is Phantom just turns up above the balcony and starts. Yeah, singing. I don't remember it happening. Yeah. Mm. But in this, <laughs> Christine has been given a rose by the Phantom with a black ribbon around it, and she drops it on the roof after singing uh, with Raoul and leaves it behind. And the Phantom picks it up, and he sings the reprise of their song anywhere you go let me go to but it's you will curse the day you did not do all that the phantom asked of you and it's it was delivered magnificently by crawford Actually, somehow feel Butler did it even better because you get to really get close to his face with the film and he's holding this rose and crushing it up and feeling just this is what I cannot have and 
Yeah, and I really like that actually when he's singing, his voice breaks and he is actually crying. Like he's yeah. not just singing about how much pain he's in. He's mm-hmm. actually showing how much he's pain full. he's in. Yeah. I think yeah. that's actually a very powerful moment. And it's not overacted as well. Mm. Like it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it goes very, very faint and very, very high and vulnerable, which is, again, why I feel like Butler's never going to be able to get to this level. He's not going to have a character this meaty. And because of the benefit of the close-up, we are with Phantom with this. We're not just watching him up on a balcony. We are experiencing that sense of betrayal, however misplaced it may be. We can see directly into his eyes. We can see his hands as he's crushing this rose. And because of the softness of his voice, we can feel the version of his life he thought he was going to have slip away from him. It's grief. And then comes back with the, you will cross! Just this, like, it's righteous indignation. It's not even just fury. He's just like, I'm the fucking phantom at this point. And it's just this, it's the big crane shot that, uh, you know, that uh, Les Miserables kind of uh, justified itself as a, a musical on film because they can do the really big close-ups like we've just had with Phantom for the really intense scenes and the big crane shots. The change of 
perspective that you can't really attain on stage. You can do it with some clever trickery, but you can't crane the audience up way above uh, what's happening. And you spend your Alton Towers and you need safety bars. Yeah. But that leads me to what I always say about musicals committed to film. And every time someone scoffs at the idea that musicals on film are, uh, you know, are, are a good thing, and it's like they're nothing like the real thing, and the the, the, the stage plays better. Musicals on film allow your average couple, your average family, your average group of friends to just be able to go and see this thing without having to come up with 200, 300 pounds plus the travel expenses to get there, the hotel if it's very far away, the ridiculousness of the the extravagance of going to a big theatre. Yeah, absolutely. I I think people can be really elitist about that sort of thing, and I really, really hate it. And it's interesting, actually, on the extras, which you probably saw as well, where they Mm -hmm. talked to Andrew Lloyd Webber at the premiere. Yeah, even he. And he says, oh, you know, I was talking to people outside, and there's young people out there, and they're really excited, and I asked them why, and it's because they said, well, we can't afford to go to the theatre. And I was like, oh, yes, you've discovered the working class. He was also talking to millennials there. So. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, we are saying this in the week when we find out that Hamilton is coming to a cinema near us oh 20 God. months from now. Fucking Christ! It's, it's yeah, okay. I can, there so are reasons. It, I'm so excited. I'm just going to... The wait's intolerable. But, <laughs> but the fact that it's happening in... Uh, it'll just be what? Five years after it turned up on on the on stage, whereas with Phantom it was uh, eighteen years afterwards, eighty six through to two thousand four. Well, there were, there were. Hang on a minute. There were other versions, weren't there? But they weren't. Yeah, but they versions. weren't this. Yeah. There were other adaptations of yeah. Phantom of the Opera. There was a Charles Dance TV version, which I saw. Not right, good. It was in in nineteen ninety. Certainly weren't singing. And the Phantom of the Paradise, of course. I I never mentioned that he actually looks like a character from the Mighty Boosh. Mm. He's got this giant bird beak thing with me one big eye. Uh, yeah, it's worth seeing just for that. But, uh, yeah, now we're in Act 2, and we begin. Before you move to Act 2, there was just one yep. tiny thing that I wanted to say about the tale All right. of... Uh, oh, yeah, and the everybody should be able to get to musicals, or...? Uh, no, 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 back before that. Okay. Um, so, the what we were saying about the themes being reprised throughout a musical, and you were saying that that means that you can bring those themes and ideas that go with that song back into the story, shift mm-hmm. it around in terms of who's singing it, and it changes the perspective on it, that kind of thing. Yeah. It also means that the audience knows what that song is supposed to sound like, so so you can play with it and do something slightly different with it in a way that mm. makes a particular narrative point. So for in this one particularly, as Raoul and Christine are moving away, she says uh, her last line of, of her version of that song is, you'll guard me and you'll guide me. And then it is musically incomplete. That song is not done with. Mm. Then the Phantom comes in and, and sort of brings his self-doubt and guilt into it. And that first off it gives you this sense that this is not the closure of the story by any means that mm-hmm. they're they are going to have to do more to resolve this issue with the phantom and obviously we know that because it's only the end of act one um but also going back to this whole sort of psychological framework of it it's not that easy for christine to put that 
aspect of herself aside to just say, okay, I'm done with you now, moving on with Raoul, this this sort of more healthy version of my externalising myself in the world. But no, there's more to it than that. She can't finish that Mm. song and have that, that sort of musical closure. I think she probably still also feels responsible for the phantom as well. Like just thinking back to how I was as a teenager, if you're somehow connected to a man who then starts behaving badly because of how he feels about you and you're not feeling the same way, you take a lot of that on yourself Mm. and you feel like it's your fault somehow and and you're responsible for it. And it's your job to look after the man and kind of take care of his feelings. Mm -hmm. So I think there's probably a, a lot of that in there as well. The only other thing I wanted to say about that song as well, actually, and this doesn't really connect to anything, but I think it might make you laugh, is that whenever they sing about anywhere you go, let me go to, I mean, it's beautiful and it's so romantic, but also I always think of Lord of the Rings, where Sam (laughs) chasing Frodo and he's like, don't go where I can't follow. And I'm like, God, that was the gay Lord of the Rings I needed and I didn't get. But I always think of that. That's like the, a stupid movie connection in my brain every single time. I love that. I'm I'm going to think of that every time now. Um, and three months pass, and uh, they uh, we begin again with a masquerade, which is a complacency song. Nothing's particularly happened because Christine's been away from the opera house for ages, and the Phantom's been quiet. And they've all decided, fuck that Phantom, just he, he's gone. There's none of that Phantom thing anymore. We don't need to worry about it anymore. Let's have a masquerade, um, a party where everyone wears masks. Let's really rub it in his fucking half-ugly face. <sighs> and uh, it's, it's done uh, fantastically on stage. They uh, have uh, like this big staircase, and they've got a lot of standees there that are like party guests that don't move because they aren't real, and a lot yeah. of people dancing around who are real, but you can't really tell because there's so much movement. Mm. And one of the things I love, Meg is dressed as a monkey, and remember that papier-mâché monkey with the uh, symbols that I mentioned uh, earlier? Uh, it's There's a connection there between Meg and the Phantom, and I'll come back to that later. But the monkey itself is very meaningful to the Phantom. And as they're doing uh, a masquerade and it transpires that um, uh, there's an engagement between uh, uh, Raoul and uh, Christine and they're going to be able to get away from here for good after a, a while. The Phantom turns up dressed like Skeletor. He totally does. This Just, <laughs> just a small point here about the... Oh, I say small, it's wall-to-wall relevance, um, but the, the colouring of the masquerade ball here is a very significant and specific choice. The stage versions of Masquerade are usually this riot of chaotic colour and and recalling the opera performances themselves. In the film, almost everybody is in black and white. They're very elaborate costumes. They've all got masks. They've all got, you know, dresses that stand out six foot on either side, as was... (laughs) That was the trend at the time. Um, but other than these sort of little touches of, of sort of every tenth person wearing something gold, everybody's in black and white. And it marks a very distinct difference to the, uh, the, that vivid richness that we had in the Phantom's lair. The, the faded and old and everything soggy though it was... 
we've now moved to somewhere where um, sort of everything's in this monochrome. And I have brought you to my bedroom where everything's soggy. <laughs> <laughs> You want to stay? Um... <laughs> Not really. Um, but specifically, the, the standout costumes are Christine, who is wearing pink, which obviously recalls that sort of red in a, in a subtle way. And then the Phantom turns up in his own red velvet outfit, which, I've got to say, does look like he might have made it out of his own curtains. Mm. He was like, well, these curtains aren't doing anything. Plus I got 20,000 francs. He's a genius. I'm sure that he can make a coat out of curtains. I think he probably could, yeah. Um, But the... Again, 20,000 francs will buy you a decent coat. What's he spending it on? he's wearing, like, tuxes and dinner jackets for the most part, you know. But this is what he wanted. It helps him stand out amidst all the black and white. Um, But the, the movement of the people as they come down the stairs, and you mentioned about the standees, the way everybody is moving is very clockwork. Yeah. And it it recalls that feeling of his dioramas and his little models. And yeah. it kind of gives yeah. you that, that sense that he's puppeteering all of this, that he sees everybody as his mannequins. And the fact that they're... Uh, sorry, not mannequins, marionettes. And the fact that they're all in black and white at this point, which kind of recalls that monochrome that they've used for the flash-forwards to 1919... To me, it kind of makes it look like the Phantom doesn't really see all these people as people, but they're these, just these figures that he moves into place to help him get what he wants. NPCs. Mm. That's exactly what I thought when we see him kind of playing with those dioramas. I was like, oh, that that kind of makes a lot of sense then, uh, as him not seeing the other people there as being real. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, You can read this, especially now, as a story about an aggressive, violent incel who kidnaps a woman, gaslights her, and forces her to believe his version of reality, uh, wherein it is peopled only by beings that he doesn't consider to be living and worthy of... uh, uh, Merit. Mm, yeah, and and the fact that you've got the 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 giveaway line in his earlier song about you know the the beast that secretly yearns for beauty. It's a yeah. Beauty and the Beast reference. There's this has got blue beard all over it. Mm-hmm. So when he turns up dressed as Skeletor, he sings "Why So Silent," and <laughs> I love the fact that he he kind of takes control of the whole thing. As you said, everyone's wearing black and white. He's the one now wearing red. Mm. He's like, yeah, if he's like, all right. So if they're all wearing tuxes, I've got to get rid of this. Oh, also, he wears a fedora for a lot of the uh, not in the film, but in the stage play, mm. <laughs> my operas. Um, <clears throat> so he sort of turns up, and then somehow the film manages to conflate quite a lengthy bit of business that would follow this sequence where they're training up to do his play that he demands that they uh, put on this opera uh, Don Juan Triumphant they conflate the important stuff from that exchange just into um, why so silent so you don't have to have that business and then there's more time for a duel in the in the uh, graveyard uh, but it's 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 really economical, and they even also get in this new song, "Learn to Be Lonely." Just this that little bit when he's standing and looking at, at Christine. That is brand new for this film, and it's one of my favorite elements. This moment of vulnerability there in front of everybody, and then he remembers himself and snatches that uh, the uh, ring from her uh, uh, neck 
and just goes back to being a complete asshole again and then disappears down into his lair uh, pursue, exit pursued by a Raoul who fails to uh, catch him <laughs> yes indeed yeah Why so silent, good monsieur? Did you think that I had left you for good? Have you missed me, good messieurs? I have written you an opera. Here I bring the finished score. Don Juan Triumphant! Fondest greetings to you all. A few instructions just before rehearsal starts. Carlotta must be taught to act, not a normal trick of strutting round the stage. Oh, Don Juan must lose some weight. It's not healthy in a man of Pianji's age. And my managers must learn that their place is in an office, not the arts. As for our star, Miss Christine Dye, no doubt she'll do her best. It's true, her voice is good. She knows, though. Should she wish to excel, she has much still to learn. If pride will let her return to me, her teacher, her teacher. Your chains are still mine. You belong to me. And Michaela, you're absolutely right. Rolls sort of disappearing out the back door. Rather than being there to protect her, the yeah. The Phantom is confronting Christine. I mean, I... Take I, her with him, at least, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do like the fact that he delivers his threats and commands in person here, rather than it, doing it all by notes again. Mm. It does make that threat much more immediate, much more apparent. Um, it brings it front and centre that his behaviour is deteriorating and, and something's going to have to be done about it. Um, but yeah, Raoul mm. just appears to be disappearing at this stage. But uh, this is the, uh, the point where Madame Giry finally makes herself known. She pulls him out of uh, uh, the fire and explains what she probably should have explained to at least someone mm. uh, quite a while ago, yeah. who the hell yeah. the Phantom is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she met him as a uh, young boy when it was at a travelling carnival and uh, it's this sort of there's this drunken haziness to the way that it's being directed it makes the 19th century seem pretty fucking horrible I mean the, the preposterousness of the actual 
come and see the devil's child, this, like, d- disgusting, terrible ringmaster says, sort of in slow motion, getting children into a tent to look at a boy, a little boy in a cage with a sack on his head, whom he proceeds to beat in front, with a stick, in front of everyone. And it's like, this was entertainment in those days, was it? <laughs> Uh, and then he sort of pulls off his uh, uh, sack mask and goes, "There, look, facial deformity. It'll be, uh, it'll be two bits of gander." This era, in terms of entertainment regarding carnivals, was pretty fucking brutal, especially on people who were born even the least bit different. So yeah, and, uh, and, and then as the young Jiri uh, uh, watches and remains the only kid in the tent, this uh, horrible ringmaster gets throttled with uh, a rope by the uh, vengeful child whom she steals away and hides in the opera house. And at this stage, you can completely understand why he would do it and it does create a sense of sympathy and compassion for the circumstances mm. that he found himself in. And oh, definitely, the- yeah. And the barrel organ music playing is Masquerade, which would suggest that the, that particular um, piece of music has, you know, stabs at him. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of like that ties in with uh, his desperation to keep himself covered up. And, but this gives you a lot more sympathy for him than you get in the stage show because you hear it from her, but it's not acted out. And, and also she describes him as... Um, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Michaela, but just a, a, a man who was a genius and designed a labyrinth for a Persian yeah. shah. And it's like, why the fuck was he in a, sorry about this word, freak show at a carnival? It's like, yeah, so he's a genius, a poet, uh, a magician, and, uh, you know, a, a master architect. But look at his face. Two bits of gander. It's, it doesn't make any fucking sense. From how it's described in the uh, uh, stage show, he, he was definitely a man when she met him. Which also makes him feel way, way older. Because Madame Giry is usually portrayed as a decrepit monkey skeleton. Uh, it feels less like he had a terrible, horrible life growing up. And... The, the pity that you get for him at the end is far sharper in the film than from what Jiri describes and we, because we never get to connect with him as a child. Yeah, it feels much more like she's making excuses for him yeah. in the play. I'm kind of very dubious of hearing that sort of second-hand yeah. uh, without more kind of context, but seeing in the film is, is a very different experience, I think. You're right. Yeah. Please, monsieur, you have to understand, he is a genius. He just killed a person. <laughs> yeah, but he is a genius. Um... <laughs> He's adopted. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now for Christine's big moment. This is... See, I loved this when I was a kid because it was a very uh, sweet song, but I didn't get, because you can't get from the liner notes, the context of what happens. All I got was the songs, and there's no verbal lead-up to this. Wishing you were somehow here again is Christine going to the graveyard to the crypt of her father and just going inwards and examining the fact that she has been feeling grief for more years than she can count and she wants to be able to move forward from it. Sharon, this one always Mm -hmm. makes you 
crime. Yeah, it, it's. I think what sums up what you're talking about there is the line, dreaming of you won't help me to do all that you dreamed I could. The, the memory of her father is holding her back at this point and she's starting to recognise this. And yeah, she's, she's come here for some kind of resolution, um, some kind of reconciliation with these feelings of grief that she's been carrying with her. And in the film and I think this is slightly different from the stage version you also get the fact that the Don Juan trap has started to play out early because the Phantom uh, steals the cloak of the carriage driver yeah and he's the one who takes Christine to the graveyard yeah it's a um, contrivance to get him there. It is, but because otherwise she just goes to the graveyard, and, and in the st- stage show, he up. just happens to be there. Yeah, but the another level of this is that it, it's again, it's him taking control of Christine when she's in a grieving and vulnerable mindset. He starts singing "Angel of Music" to again assert yeah, himself again, as this yeah, father precisely. figure. Precisely, it's it's unsettling her. It's uh, you know he's tugging at the rug beneath her feet. He's deliberately trying to shake up her her sense of where she is of who she is and to bring her back Um, to where she was when he brought her through the mirror in the first place so it was like look we had a good thing going there can we go back to there exactly but this again for the first time she's in her own clothes these are the things that she's chosen to wear they are older they're more sophisticated than the costumes she's been in so far and she's seeking counsel and guidance ostensibly from her father stroke possibly god but there's this sort of element of when you're speaking to somebody who's passed what you're really doing is is reaching inward for your own internal resources that's what she's doing this is a really good impulse it's a really good instinct that she has here to resolve this with herself and she's trying to do it away from Raoul away from the phantom so that she can just concentrate on you know what do I think what do I feel who am I in this particular situation and by inserting himself into the scene the phantom is messing that up yeah yeah this is very much not cool because he's deliberately chosen to uh, approach her when she's obviously very emotionally vulnerable and she's not expecting him to be there she's not on her guard she is thinking about her father her relationship with him where she's going in her life and where she wants to be. And then he's coming in as this outside influence and he's confusing her on purpose. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the and again, the, the try to forgive, teach me to live, give me the strength to try. She's What she's talking about there is integrating the useful, supportive parts of that internalised father figure who is no longer physically with her. And if she can bring those good parts of him into herself she can move forward and that will help her to leave behind those controlling suffocating parts which are manifesting as the phantom yeah i also kind of maybe this is me reading way too much into it but i kind of got the sense that maybe there she was also slightly kind of angry with him because of all these stories that he's told her where you know he's going to make sure that she's protected Mm. he's going to send the angel of music to her and it's like well thanks dad because now I'm here with this phantom guy who is very much real and running around killing people. And, you know, it's you didn't prepare me for that in any way. Absolutely. And you certainly haven't protected me from it. And now I'm here dealing with it without you. Yeah. He gave her stories that were useful for a seven-year-old girl. They are not yeah. useful for a woman of 16, 17 who is trying to work out what the hell's going on. Mm. Absolutely. 
I think he may have uh, he, he promised that he would send her an angel of music. I think it was when he was dying. Mm. Oh, absolutely. It was a desperation. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. It was, it's it's a story to help her let go of him as he goes. But then once he's gone, that story is of limited helpfulness going forward. And yeah. this song is literally the last words are help me say goodbye. Mm. Little Lottie thought of everything and nothing. Her father promised her that he would send her the angel of music. Her father promised her. Her father promised her. Friends. 
Una Momento. Okay. And then the Phantom shows up to ruin everyone's drinking water. And uh, he's like, I'm violating your father's crypt, like normal. And uh, there's an immediate duel, which ups the stakes uh, because it means Raoul and the Phantom get to actually like clash in a very cinematic very kind of swashbuckling way uh, which a lot of people really don't like I th- it's nice to me that they get to actually really start to like bash off each other um, although it is two guys fighting over a girl ultimately it's two guys fighting over how that girl should be able to choose to live her life. And it also, for, for me, it really helped to reframe that duel as these are the two elements of Christine fighting within herself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again. Although I, I did so wonder, though, so where the Phantom actually learned how to fight. Because presumably he doesn't have a fencing partner in the basement. 20,000 francs. <laughs> Every He's bloody hiring month. fencing partners. Yeah, he knows an awful lot of stage combat, but he kind of draws a blank at the pointy end, goes in the other man. If you consider well, how much he must have uh, attained over the years in this blackmail, it is squandered <laughs> doing what he does. <laughs> and also, again, it feels like this is a little bit of a step up from the uh, stage play because in the, the in the play, the Phantom sort of stands on top of the crypt opens the doors and say like come on keep walking towards me yep keep going come on and he's trying to entice Raul to come and take him on and like throws down fireballs and basically Raul and Christine go nah and then walk off and the Phantom's like ah brilliant (laughs) and then it says now let it be war upon you both now in every version of it I I realised today what does that even really mean now let it be war upon you both he was already pissed at Raoul and he's already pissed at Christine what it amounts to is I have decided you are Christine's weakness to get her I'm going to use you it's just that war upon you both is how that comes across it's it's a, a lot of reading into it on my part I always kind of thought that it was like him basically saying well I've got nothing left to lose at this point mm. Yeah. Because he's realised, you know, there's the the point where he sees them together as a couple, which is obviously a massive blow and really hurts him. Mm. But he's still trying to come up with a plan. And that feels like his last kind of attempt to win back Christine. Mm. And it hasn't worked. He's had a massive fight with Raoul and that hasn't worked. And so now he's like, well, fuck it. I've got nothing left to lose. Mm. Shit just got real. Is it possible that at that stage he was not necessarily seeking it, but that he'd take death? over having to go without her. Yeah, I think he absolutely would. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that she won't allow uh, Raoul to complete that... Not like this. ...makes him even more infuriated. Mm. Mm. So they decide to... uh, They, uh, all except for Christine, decide to put on the Phantom's play, uh, Don Juan Triumphant, using Christine as bait. And as you say, uh, Raoul is like, yep, absolutely, we're going to do that. Which, again, comes down to, okay, so you wouldn't kill him there in the graveyard, but you're going to put on this play and make it far more complicated on his home territory. Absolutely. And also, I'm going to make this point, if you're dealing with somebody who is clearly not a well gentleman in the brain in the head department and he's written this play and presumably you've read it yeah and gone okay there's a metaphor going on here isn't there maybe this is not such a great idea Mm. 
Well, this play's obviously a trap. We'll turn this trap into a trap. Then it's a double trap. <laughs> okay. And other great ideas. <laughs> Absolutely. But again, it totally strips out Christine's autonomy because yeah. she becomes bait. She is reduced to the status of a piece of cheese. The film Does the film have Twisted Every Way in it? I don't think I heard it. It's in the theatre version. It's when Christine is basically having a nervous breakdown. It's actually slightly before she goes to do Wishing You Were Somehow Here Again. It's where they're insisting she do this play and she's being pulled back forth. Oh, Jesus God, Christ. Yeah, you're right. No, I don't think that is yeah. in the film. That illustrates how... She is ensconced in the demented melancholia of a Tennessee Williams heroine. Well, yes, indeed. This is the lovely Sarah Brightman singing the original 1986 version of that song. Well, I'm frightened. Don't make me do this. Well, it scares me. Don't put me through this ordeal by far. He'll take me, I know. We'll be parted forever. He won't let me go. What I once used to dream, I now dread. If he finds me, it won't ever end, and he'll always be there, singing songs in my head. He'll always be there, singing songs in my head. You said yourself he was nothing. But a man Yet while he lives He will haunt us Till we're dead Twisted every way What answer can I give? performances of Christine that start to make her a little unhinged at this point which is quite understandable because you know if we're going to go with Sharon's reading the various facets of her mind are smashing up against each other and if we're going to go in the very literal sense a bunch of dudes are yeah (laughs) okay so we get to Don Juan Triumphant which by the way if you've seen a series of unfortunate events is The Marvelous Marriage by Count Olaf a uh, play in which he's awesome and gets the girl and that's basically it <laughs> oh god yeah you're right <laughs> um, so, so yeah uh, there's a it's confusing as hell in terms of staging in every version of it that I've seen simply because 
As far as I can tell, the gist of Don Juan Triumphant is the lead character of the master, played by Pianji, the tenor we mentioned before, trades places with his man so that his man can romance Christine's character for reasons unknown. But when Pianji goes out back, the Phantom straight up kills him and comes out dressed as the actor who was going to play the man who's playing the master, played by Pianji. Two many disguises. Passorino, faithful friend, once again recite the plan. Your youngest believes I'm you, I the master, you the man. When you met, you wore my cloak, she could not have seen your face. She believed she dined with me in her master's borrowed place. Furtively with scoff and quaff stealing what in truth is mine When it's late and modesty starts to mellow with the wine You come home, I use your voice, slam the door like crack of doom I shall say come hide with me where oh where of course my lord For thing hasn't got to charge Here's my hat, my cloak and sword, conquest is assured If I do not forget myself and love <laughs> And people complain about modern-day blockbusters having too many explosions. And he goes backstage, and then the Phantom goes, Right, come here there, Sonny Jim. And then, <laughs> in inverted commas, Pianji comes back out. You know, th this is a man who is of a slightly larger build than mm. Gerard Butler, shall we say. And now looks exactly like Gerard Butler doing the Dracula thing with his like yeah. arm up over his. I, I will say, yeah. in the stage version, the guy playing the footman has a build that is much closer to the Phantom. Yeah. So it is possible that, at least briefly, she thinks it's the actor who is supposed to be playing that role. How in the film, ever? they cast somebody as the footman who is the exact shape and dimensions of the guy playing Pianji, thereby completely undermining the point of that mm. confusion. In the stage show, he comes out dressed like the Grim Reaper with just this black, dark cloak all over himself, just completely, you know, like just walking around like he can't see shit. In the film, he comes out dressed as the Phantom of the Opera. Absolutely. And, and it's like, he appears to have lost some weight. And, and some gained height. some height. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing. We know what you sound like. Christine knows what you sound like. We've only heard you for two hours. She's heard you for years. The moment he comes out there and starts singing, you have come here. I'll oh, say the Phantom then. Okay, cool. As opposed to, hmm, I wonder what's going on. Well, I guess I better stay in character. Uh, it is not made clear in any version, like the stage version or the film version, exactly when Christine twigs that this is definitely the Phantom. Now, my thinking is, she knows it's him from the get-go. She's just acting like she doesn't. And then she's like, oh, I'm so shocked because you turned out to be the Phantom. Your disguises, my lord. Um, <laughs> But the whole point is that there's this sort of big, sort of seductive song. I mean, past the point of No Return is a fantastic song, and it's got this really great kind of passionate kind of like push and pull back and forth. And in the stage play, she wears this really magnificently sexy kind of courtesan dress, which they they've yeah. modified for the film so that it's a little more of a kind of like sort of it's a lighter number, and it's got these kind of 
shoulder thingies that whenever she kind of gives herself over, the shoulder thingies fall down, giving her bare shoulders. And then she readjusts them off camera in a kind of like, no, actually, I'm going to pull myself back together again. But that's like a really significant moment. That's where she's like, no, I'm not falling for this. Yeah, do you know what? The shoulder things really bother me because I can Mm. never work out, is that actually like a genuine wardrobe malfunction? And if so, why are they not fixing it? (laughs) Or is it a deliberate choice? Mm. In which case, why are we not seeing her then adjust the shoulder straps when she's Mm. sort of being more conscious of what she's doing and what's happening you see her and you know it really bothers me when my shoulder thingies fall down so Mm. watching her i'm just like god woman your shoulder thingies Mm. they're coming down (laughs) absolutely you need to do something about them yeah so when they're up and then when amy russell sort of looks at the the phantom singing this seductive song and they just go flip plop down there like that (laughs) and she's got this look on her face like harmona harmona um and and (laughs) you know he's like as Gerard Butler, I'm going to say probably the sexiest phantom just in terms of like his just general charisma coming off. Because like, if you look at Michael Crawford, amazing voice. But you then look at him in Some Mothers Do Have Them. He's Frank Spencer. Yeah. Yeah. He he would be keeping the mask on. Yes. Yeah. Although Karim Lou, if you you look at him just like, you know, not in phantom mask, he's like a perfectly like handsome, well-built, you know, lantern jawed Gaston looking guy but he just doesn't have that you know smouldering charisma you (laughs) You need the smoulder you you gotta have the smoulder I feel like Butler was miscast for the rest of his career because he could have been much more fun Mm. he could frankly have followed much more of a Hugh Jackman like career Mm, potentially so you know but um I mean, he, he still might surprise us with other stuff. Maybe he was just gutted by the fact that people didn't really like this very much and it, yeah. it made him less confident about doing that kind of role. And then a few years later, he did 300 and everyone was like, oh, fucking yes, do this again <laughs> and again and again and again and again. And, you know, punch terrorists in the throat and shoot criminals in the face. That's what we want to see you do, Gerard. Nothing else. Yeah. You are a man's manly man. We're not man. keen on the voice, but we like these in the pectoral area. <laughs> Can we see more of that? Mm. So at the end of uh, Past the Point of No Return, when it becomes clear to Christine, yeah, this is the Phantom, um, or she knew it all, all along. Either way, he then sings, Say you love... And he turns Raoul's song on her to say, Look, I can do the supportive, nice, sweet guy too. I'm a nice guy. And then he like takes his pinky ring off and shoves it on her and goes, see, you're wearing my ring now. That means we're married, right? Am Wasn't I right? Was that her engagement ring that he took off her at the masquerade ball? Oh, uh, no. Um, hang on, no. Or am the, I wrong about that? Yeah, no. The one around her neck is just your kind of, your one ring, like ring ring the one he puts on her in the film is is got a great big diamond twenty thousand francs oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> though i guarantee he got that off a dead woman's finger just <laughs> he was just in a, a graveyard well that's true actually yeah um but just to back it up a little bit Sorry. because the, the this bit where she does the the past the point of no return this for me although i absolutely love wishing you were somehow here again and that's my personal favorite yeah song and and delivery for Christine this is a really really significant moment for her as a character because the part of what she's processing here is that there is there's part of her that 
is responsible what you were saying Michaela about that feeling responsible for the the guy's feelings and the guy's behavior yeah um there's there's an element of that and it feeds into the fact that he is responsible for a part of herself that she loves her voice mm. he's the one who's given her that that is true his training is what's helped her to to have that voice mm. And so she's got all of this guilt and obligation and horror in the actions that he's he's been making that, that are absolutely terrifying to her. She's desperate to retreat, but she knows that she's got to confront this if she's ever going to be free of it. Otherwise, he's going to be tailing her for the rest of her life. Yeah. And with Past the Point of No Return, you get this is another point where you get the overlap between the lyrics of the opera that's being performed and Christine's own feelings. Mm. And there's a moment in this song, and I am kicking myself for not writing down what the line was, but her voice drops from yes. soprano to alto. That is the little girl becoming yes. a woman. Is it when That's will exactly the flames at last consume us? Yes, incredibly sexy, but also <laughs> the fact that she is growing up and she's taking control of these desires that the kind of slut-shamey, old-fashioned way of looking at this is that it is her own desires that have trapped her. It's not the desires it's the lack of understanding of those desires that have trapped her and this is her sort of seizing control of that and saying no I know who I am I am Christine fucking Daae and this is my my moment to uh, to turn this situation where I've been turned into a piece of cheese into something that that I have a say in what happens and then that's when she gets the confidence to step forward and take his mask and everything that happens after that is a result of her being able to actually make action decisions herself absolutely and his and when he he switches to um to imitating Raoul's song this is again this is really key this is not his song Mm. this Mm -hmm. is not the phantom he's stolen it he is trying to be the thing he thinks she wants yeah um and in part again this is part of his tragedy he doesn't have his own words to express what he feels he can't express actual love in his own song his song is about possession it's not about love it's not about that that you know that give and take that that raul was able to offer her and it doesn't fool her and so this is the point where she whips off the mask to signal to mm. Raoul and his waiting soldiers that it's time to come and, and get him. And again, this is her sort of taking the the initiative and and being her own action in the world, which is a really powerful step forward for somebody who has thus far effectively been a tug of war rope between two guys. Yeah. Yeah. Three more brief reprises that are worth mentioning before we get down to down once more. One is uh, the you have come here that I have brought you that he opens past the point of no return with. That is his now you're down here in the basement in my lair. This is my domain. But now he's doing it up on the stage. He has expanded his empire to encompass the whole stage so like this is his moment of triumph of like finally you're all playing to my tune you had a point about the consumer's line as in it's actually a reprise of an earlier lower tone that she'd hit Hmm. she starts to go into a slightly lower register during the phantom of the opera song but it's there's a difference in how she sings it the the previous one it's almost as though she's 
cosplaying being a grown-up, that she's she's experimenting with this trying to be more mature, but it's not until past the point of no return that it really becomes her. Yeah, the line I think you were uh, referring to was the inside my mind, that sort of like imitating his darkness. Yeah, yeah. and it's all instigated by him, whereas mm. this is Christine taking it for herself. And the last one is Raoul when he sings Christine, Christine, don't think that I don't care, but every hope and every prayer rests on you now. And this is just before she ends up going, fuck this, and goes off to the graveyard to be on her own. He's singing it to the tune of Prima Donna. That's when Raoul has forgotten the most important thing, which is Christine's well-being, and has become as obsessed with catching and ending the Phantom and using Christine as bait. He's gone to the dark side at that point, so he needs to come back from that later and realize, I should never have put you in danger. So when he sings, Christine, forgive me, please forgive me, that's what he's singing, I'm sorry for. It's, I should not have put you here. Yeah. Well, he's asking her to play a role at that yeah. point. For the benefit of the opera populaire, like, that's more important. Also worthy of note, in order to steal this song... In order to perform the point of no return on stage, the Phantom killed Pianji. So his version of Say you'll share with me one love, one lifetime rings hollow. Because to declare it, he killed a man, and he wants her to just accept that. That's the point of no return. No backward glances Our games of make-believe Are at an end Oh, thought of if or when No use resisting Abandon thought And let the dream Of blood, the soul. What rich desire unlocks its door? What sweet seduction lies before us? Past the point of no return, the final threshold. What warm, unspoken secrets will we?
Like I said in the stage show, uh, it's much more about like he yanks off his pink, his gross pinky ring and shoves it on her and says, "Right, you're going to come live with me forever in my mom's basement." <laughs> Literally, and um, so then they uh, he flees and takes her down once more to the dungeon, and he's like he's being super dramatic here, and he's not even all that angry at her for unmasking him. He's like, "Right, this it's it's back to that. This is me." Why, you ask, was I bound and chained in this cold and dismal place? Not for any mortal sin, but the wickedness of my abhorrent face! Pounded out by everyone, met with hatred everywhere. No kind words from anyone, no compassion anywhere. Christian! Why? Why? And he throws at her again. I was born with this deformity, and thus I am cursed. And her now mature response to him is, Forget the face, it's what's inside, and your actions. That fate which condemns me to wallow in blood has also denied me the choice of the flesh. This face the infection which poisons our love. This face which earned a mother's fear and loathing. A mask, my first unfeeling scrap of clothing. Pity comes too late Turn around and face your fate 
an eternity of this before your eyes. This haunted face holds no horror for me now. It's Forget the face. Forget it. And it's significant, by the way, that uh, Gerard Butler, even with this, like, you know, six hours worth of makeup on his face there to make him look deformed, still looks handsome (laughs) as living fuck. I mean, yeah, he still doesn't really look that bad. It's like, yeah. all you really need is a haircut with your 20,000 francs. I'm sure you can afford. No one must see my messy blonde hair. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, that to that end, you might just uh, be able to reinterpret it as he was being, you know, made a freak by uh, by these repulsive carnival people for not much, for not, not for like look at how disgusting he is. Honestly, not much. Mm-hmm. Two bits of gander, but I guess we've got to get our money's worth. And so yeah, he spent this whole in the audience that gasp when she unmasks him. Like, yeah. it's a, you're being a bit dramatic. Yeah. Like, I'm not even sure they can see that from where they're sitting. <laughs> yeah. It's not as strong as some of the stage makeup. Mm. So, and he spent no. his whole life uh, um, dwelling with this. And then Christine quite rightly tells him, "No, it's the the t- the, the the face is not the thing about you that's wrong." Mm. Yeah. But also, one one point about this that I thought was really significant is the fact that he's been isolated and feels that he's endured all this loathing and hatred because of his face. But this is a part of himself that he can't see. Mm. He doesn't have to look at his face all the time. This, the the... I mean, I know he's got mirrors, but ultimately this inability to actually covers them see the, the thing that he claims is the source of all of his distress, yeah. that kind of tells you what he lacks is self-awareness and insight. He can't see where the true distortion is because he's fixated on the superficial. He's fixated on this part of himself that he cannot and doesn't have the strength to actually examine and be able to go, oh, you know what, actually, maybe it's not that bad. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like when he sings later on, is it to Raoul when he says, oh, well, the world showed no compassion to me. Yeah. And it's like, well, actually, mate, that's not true because Madame Jerry showed compassion to yes. you. Mm-hmm. And actually, did. even so did Raoul in the graveyard when he chose not to kill him. He left him yeah. there. Yeah. Christine so, showed him compassion repeatedly. Yeah. she did, In, yeah. in the, the initial confrontation, after that moment of, of yelling, she goes really calm and gives him the mm. mask back. Mm. Christine's very kind to him. And he never asks for compassion from anyone else. He's always an asshole to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is again, and I, I said this to you when we were watching the stage version, you cannot rip compassion from people. You can't force them to be compassionate to mm. you. 
this, I mean, this then culminates. Uh, Rel falls into a trap, which just seems to take a few too many minutes of the film, where it's like, oh no, God, is Rel going to die? And again, this is one of those sort of excuses to. Like, I could probably snip this bit out of the film, but like uh, now the militia are after him. He's brought down the chandelier. The whole place is burning, and rather than putting out the fire, they're all hunting the phantom. It's uh, a very flammable building as oh, well, yeah. isn't it? But they're all like <laughs> yes. taking their time hunting him in the basement. I'm like, could you not have done this after the first murder? That you're going to wait until the place is literally on fire, and it's like, well, now we're going to hunt him. Upstairs is literally made of papier mache and curtains, and yeah. you can just let it burn. Absolutely, and spilled wax, probably. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, it, it's become kind of desperate, and Raoul turns up. The Phantom ties him to a, a, a portcullis, and says, "Right, okay." We now have a fine choice for you to make, Christine, which is, I, I believe, what comes back, uh, back to his decision to uh, use Raoul to get her. So either stay with me forever and I let him go, or go and I'll kill him, which is a ridiculously unfair thing to, uh, to ask of her. And this... It culminates in this wonderful kind of crisscross of various different songs. Christine sings Angel of Music, bringing the Phantom back to this false father figure, because she can now see through his deception. Raoul sings a sad minor key version of All I Ask of You, because he's still prepared to support her even with his death. And the Phantom sings Point of No Return, hammering home for Christine, this really is the end of the line, the ultimatum. And I don't think that the Phantom believes Christine will stay with him at this point. I think the Phantom just wants to hurt Christine because she's going to leave. And he wants her to leave, but he wants to kill Raoul to hurt her. So because he's going to be alone, he wants neither of these two lovebirds to be happy. So this is the culmination of all of their arcs, all of their intent. I love this sequence because when I watch it, I'm going back and forth and singing different lines from different characters because as melodramatic as this is, I can relate to all three of these people. I can relate to Raoul as the good supportive man I want to be to you. I can relate to the Phantom as this frustrated creator, desperate for people to listen to what he puts out, and reacting with explosive frustration when the way he wants the world to be does not occur. As dark as they are, these are aspects of my self that I try to constantly address and monitor and, and, and try to deal with and, 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 and marshal and to tame to prevent or minimize harm to others. And I can also relate to Christine as a victim of abuse and someone who had to actually grow past it. So I love this final confrontation because, as you say, Sharon, that, you know, whether it's uh, all going on in Christine's mind or not, it's all going on in my mind. I've got these aspects at war with each other. And this whole film culminates in the person who makes the real journey. I mean, Christine has now finally become active and she can actually finally make an active choice and does. 
she kisses the phantom and, and it takes pity on him. And Eric learns the difference between obsession and love. It's important that he lets them go before the track down this murderer starts. He decides... He decides he understands what love is now and wants to be better. And it's, it's very simple, it's very elemental. But... My 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 mother, I, I remember saying that of her of her friend was crying for the phantom, and she was surprised. And it's like, how could you not cry for the phantom? I mean, like, like he's done all of these terrible, terrible things, but there are these elements of darkness in us all. But to me, there's this tri- trifecta, this trio at play here, this this triforce, if you will, of wisdom, power, and courage. It just puts this cap on this story in a way that is almost unbeatable. Wait, I think, my dear, we have a guest. Sir, this is indeed an unparalleled delight. Had rather hoped that you would come. And now, my wish comes true. You have truly made my night. Let me go. Free her. Do what you like, only free her. Have you no pity? Your lover makes a passionate plea. He's wrong, it's useless. I love her. Does that mean nothing? I love her. Show some compassion. The world showed no compassion to me. Christine, Christine, let me see her. Be my guest, sir. Monsieur, I bid you welcome. Did you think that I would harm her? Why would I make her pay for the sins which are yours? Your fine horses now! Raise up your hand to the level of your eyes! Nothing can save you now, except perhaps Christine! Start a new life with me! Buy his freedom with your love! Refuse me and you send your lover to his death! This is the choice! This is the point of no return! Please forgive me. I did it all for you and all for nothing. We had to turn you back too late for prayers and useless pity. Say you lies for help. No point in fighting. Why make her lie to you to save 
I gave you my mind blindly. You try my patience. Make your choice. <laughs> I think I drew a relatively similar conclusion in terms of the, the trifecta of, of what's going on. And I, I, again, like you, I love the chaotic overlay as the three of them try to make sense of this, the clash of desires that comes out in the songs, all intercutting with each other. Um, but I, I really feel like when, if you, if you see the singing as kind of a little bit of a battle... Christine wins in the sense that eventually they both shut up and listen to her. And yeah. she does so through a combination of honesty with herself. So that's possibly the wisdom that you're referring to there. Mm. She is able to recognise you deceived me. And I thought I was giving myself to you for, for good reasons, but it's actually, I can see now where that all went wrong. She's showing compassion to the phantom who's the kind of the shadow part of herself and she's also bringing in this sense of protectiveness which is quite a new impulse for her but that her um her response about the choice that she has to make with Raul she doesn't even have to think about it it's it's instant if that's the choice you're giving me fine I, I don't even need to to think about that you let him go and yeah, it's very much this kind of idea that of, of true love, of real love, being very selfless. Mm. So Raoul is very selfless in that he immediately goes after her with no thought to his own life or his own safety. Mm. Uh, Christine immediately, without a thought, says, well, to save Raoul, I will stay with you. And then ultimately then the phantom has to be selfless as well and realise, well, actually, I, I should let you both go. That's the right thing to do mm. if I really care about you. And if only because they, between them, have now demonstrated for him that kind of love that he's not witnessed before, that he's not seen. And that, that realisation that she's not going to sacrifice Raoul to, to protect herself from him, he can see that that's not the form of love that he's been trying to show to her this whole time. Swear to me, never to tell. The 
music which you know of the angel in hell. And after he lets them go, and this is such a, a kick in the heart, after he lets them go, he reconnects with his child self. He sits down in front of the monkey music box and sings to it. And it feels almost as though he's going to let he's going to at least start to let go of all that hate and all that hurt that's built up over the years go back to who he was when he was relatively innocent and maybe try and rebuild it and start again yeah ask me paper faces on parade ask me hide your face After Christine returns one last time to give him his ring back, we hear a reprise of All I Ask of You, but their lips aren't moving. They're not singing this song. This is in the Phantom's head. It's figurative. It's a very subtle detail, and it makes all the difference. Because rather than being filled with rage and self-pity, he's gripped with melancholy, and part of him is intensely happy that he let her go and that he did one good thing. sense of being able to rebuild especially with the book end of this film he smashes up his mirrors and uh, disappears into one of them the stage show he pulls a cloak around himself and then Meg Giri is like right well we're sending the soldiers down into the crypt let's send this you know tiny hundred pound girl in first <laughs> um, goes in first and, and finds just underneath the cloak you know he's disappeared and it's just the mask which kind of again leads this question mark was he a ghost or was he just a really accomplished magician as we've seen time and time again um but the point is that it doesn't matter if he is a ghost or not he has become something 
different, something more spiritual, something that can't be caught and destroyed in that same way. He's transcended this vile form that lives and dies down here all the time in this underworld. And the way I read that, the leaving behind of the mask, is that having allowed his rage to step back a little bit, not completely, but a little bit, and allow his sadness, his grief at at having no caring, protective parent when he was very small, um, and his, his grief for his own loneliness through the years, letting that come to the surface, he is able to leave the mask behind because it's it's not that you get this blatant statement that he doesn't need it anymore. We don't see him walk away without it, but it does at least hint that he is ready to be more accepting of who he really is. Mm. Yeah, it feels like he's found some inner peace at last, which is something that he's not had throughout the entire film or his life. Yeah. Uh, however, there is a postscript to this film. Like I said, the um, uh, the, the flashing uh, back to the past f- uh, finally finishes and a uh, long coach ride for the ancient Raoul comes to an end. And it's at the, I would imagine, that it's the same graveyard. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's uh, Christine's grave and if you check the years uh, she's been dead for uh, two years which means that they had a very long life together but things are now grey and dark for him without her and he's left with pain so he bought this monkey to just set on her grave in a kind of way of making peace with the way that they came together and then he notices that there's this rose that was left there on the grave as well with the black ribbon tied around it that was the rose that uh, Phantom gave to her um, before with this ring that Christine gave back to him. And you could interpret that as the Phantom still alive and he put that there. You could interpret that as old Meg Giri carried something of the Phantom with her. I, I love the fact that it's ambiguous you could interpret it as as once madame giri finished being the phantom's keeper that he stayed connected to meg or i i honestly don't like like to get bogged down in the details of exactly what this entails just that these two men did both love this woman yeah i totally interpreted it that as the phantom's still alive Hmm. i mean he'd obviously be a lot older but then looking at the uh, years on the grave it looks like Christine was only about 63 mm-hmm. which is quite young really so yeah he'd be an 80 year old phantom or something yeah I'm so it's sure. it's conceivable you know it it's is. plausible that it would still be him yeah it's 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 very sad very bittersweet ending melancholy again it's uh, it's a feeling I I actually cherish I know it's some um, it, it's terrifying growing old but the uh the being able to look back on the bittersweet is it, it gives life flavor where just anger can only really add heat yeah well it's that that old adage isn't it about the loss is the thing that makes love really worthwhile because yeah. if you could never lose it then you wouldn't realise how valuable it was. 
And I think that's why it's important to have that in this film because the kind of traditional sort of um, structure that I've just outlined is probably the Phantom's idea of what a romantic relationship would be like, quite a kind of idealistic, sort of childish idea. And then, of course, you grow up and you realise that actually that's not how life works and that's why we should cherish what we have right now. That was really depressing, sorry. No, no, it was wonderful. beautiful. Thank you. Just trying to compose myself so I can say the very end. And there was a new song uh, made for the uh, film called uh, Learn to Be Lonely, and it was sung by Minnie Driver. It feels like it was actually through the voice of Meg. Um, yeah, I did not know that was Minnie Driver, actually. It was. Uh, but if, did you see the deleted scene, the deleted song? Uh, no, not for a while I haven't, no. Okay, it's No One Would Listen, and it's a soliloquy that the Phantom sings to himself down in his cave. I don't know where it was supposed to be in the film. It might have been before they decided to do the framing device. Mm. No One Would Listen is to the same tune as Learn to Be Lonely, and I'm going to play both as we close out. Um, no One Would Listen is... The Phantom singing about how Christine was the only one who could actually hear him. That he was desperate to get his voice out there. And it was this one person. And for some reason that just gets to me. Okay, so before we go, uh, Michaela, would you like to pimp your show? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sure, so thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I'm Bookie Snack Size on Twitter, and I've got a podcast which will be out shortly, the first episode, uh, all about Supernatural, and it's called Carry On My Wayward Chums. Okay. Um, I'll just edit around all of this um, <laughs> melodrama. Uh, Are you thank okay? you. This, th- uh, yeah, I'm okay. Um, it's not often that I get this. Uh, lacking in composure on the podcast and you certainly don't hear it <laughs> in the edit very emotional music in this actually and people yeah. can kind of sneer a little bit of Phantom but actually I, I do think it's a very emotional uh, emotional film yeah musicals are always dicey because a certain a certain percentage of people are always going to go nope fuck it fuck it nope nope don't like any of that don't like people bursting into song and it doesn't doesn't feel natural to me and I don't like that much um, emotion being uh, uh, displayed. Let your fantasies unwind in this darkness which you know you cannot find. Couldn't really finish this show without playing the great Michael Crawford's signature piece, Music of the Night. And our $15 patrons are our Rowls. You are our Vicomte du Chagny's. Keeping the opera populaire of School of Movies going. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, 
Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Let the dream begin, let your darker side this has been really fun thank you so much it's been been so lovely having you really really nice having you on thank you for joining us for this it was really cool and thank you for putting up with me going on and on and on and on and and like like running to the buffet of conversation (laughs) and loading up my plate with all the sausages I do no, that it's sometimes. It's been really fun. It? I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. We would love to have you back on at some other point. So as soon as we mention a movie that you're like, ooh, that, then just oh. just say. And we'll, we'll but do you know what? If you don't change your mind after you've had to edit me and my horrible, weird, posh voice, then yes, absolutely. Your lovely voice. Your lovely voice. Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, to, to be continued. Uh, this has been lovely. Right, so let's just sign off, Sharon, and I'll, okay. I'll stop the recording. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go and rest because, like I said, we've been, like, super focusing all day long. Yes. It's now 10 p.m. And we haven't had tea yet. Had oh, tea. my God, you must be starving. Yeah, that's fine. See, no wonder you're getting emotional. Go and eat something. <laughs> <laughs> See, the Phantom was hangry. 20,000 francs. Time. This whole thing. How many crepes could he have eaten? Okay. A deep fried Mars bar. Okay. Now that's not going to help. He's just going to crash after that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, come on. Focus. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. No one would listen. No one but her. But as the outcast hears Shamed into solitude Shunned by the multitude I learn to listen Dark my heart heard music. I long to teach the world. Rise up and reach the world. No one would listen. I alone could hear the music. Then at last a voice in the gloom. Seem to cry, I hear you, I hear your fears, your torment and your tears. She saw my loneliness, shed in my emptiness.
Your heart was on its own.